I'm afraid your father will have to remain in his coma for several more months. We'll be feeding him pure meat through a tube just like you asked. In the meantime, let's go party all over Europe. When people think of happiness or pursuing happiness, the first thing they think of is, well, it's a pretty selfish desire. I want to be happy for me. I mean, after all, who wants to be unhappy? But I'm here to tell you that, in fact, happiness is far, far, far more than a selfish desire. It's actually a moral obligation. Whether or not you're happy, and certainly whether or not you act happy, is a very, very altruistic endeavor. Yes, indeed, we have a moral obligation. Happy people make the world better. Unhappy people tend to make the world worse. There's a scene in Pinocchio where Geppetto wishes on a star. Right? And what it means is he lifts up his eyes beyond the horizon to something transcendent. And so he lifts his eyes up above his daily concerns and he says, what I want, what, what I want more than anything else is that my creation will become a genuine individual. Right? It's, it's a heroic gesture because it's so unlikely and that catalyzes the puppet's transformation into a real being. And we start as puppets. And so the trick is to get rid of your goddamn strings. I want to be like you, Mr. Peterson. Please tell me how to live. I want to get into this because this is a, I think this is a fascinating thing with you personally, that your diet, um, you're on this carnivore diet yes. now. This is what, I mean, what's fascinating to me is I haven't heard any negative stories about people doing this. Well, um, I have a negative story. Okay. Okay. When we restricted our diet and then ate something we weren't supposed to, the reaction was absolutely catastrophic. What did so, you do? What did you switch to? Um, well, the worst response, we had some apple cider that had sulfites in it, and that was really not good. Like, I was done for a month. You were done for a month? Oh, yeah, it took me out for a month. It was awful. Apple cider? Like, what was it sulfites doing? Sulfites in it. What was it doing? Oh, it, it, it produced an overwhelming sense of impending doom. He's with us. He's for us. If you love birds, you'd never want to walk under a window because it's a very sad, sad sight. Jesus said, take this cup. This is my blood of the new covenant. I said, certified freak, seven years a week. Wet ass people. Make that pull out game week. Here is a fact. There's no God over me. There's no policeman over me. There's no one over me. I am God. Fucking cider. Oh, I didn't sleep that, that month. I didn't sleep for 25 days. I didn't sleep what? at all. 
Oh my god. Oh yeah. Not and good. this is so, from fucking cider. From cider. That's what we thought. Yeah. I mean, look, again, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. You need to wake up, Dr. Peterson. My master. Please wake up for us. We are so lost without you. Twelve more rules. What is natural must be right. Eat your meat and worship mine. Stand up straight. Listen carefully. Accept your place within the hierarchy. Clean your room, pray to God, obey your lords with twelve new rules. Pinocchio! Oh, Pinocchio! Think of all the cash, think of all the suits. Don't you think the world needs twelve new rules? You watch what you say, and you find out what is natural and safe. Eat your meat and worship Stand up straight, listen carefully, accept your place And then if you tell the truth, that pulls you together and strengthens you. Twelve moons. Twelve moons. Twelve moons. You're dead. My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument. Uh, the what we uh, just watched—that uh, is the work of the uh, the good people at Amon uh, Animations. I hope I'm saying that correctly, but that's an amazing video. I uh, had to uh, to start that way for this episode uh, because this is going to be a special, uh, yeah, more or less, uh, all Jordan Peterson episode. Uh, because Peterson uh, is coming out with his uh, his new book, uh, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, in a couple of days. Uh, and so in uh, just a moment, I am going to be joined by uh, the three uh, people who uh, co-wrote this, uh, this book with me. They wrote most of it. I wrote a chapter. Uh, Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. Um, so... Uh, Introduction by Slavoj Žižek, but the people who actually wrote it, uh, who are going to be here in a second, are Conrad Hamilton, uh, Matt McManus, and Marion Trejo. Uh, usually we don't bring on guests until about the 8 o'clock mark, but uh, since uh, Conrad is in Paris, uh, where it is uh, is already like uh, 1.43 in the morning, uh, you know, we, we are going to uh, uh, hurry him on in, uh, in just a minute, and then we will... Um, and uh, and then we'll we'll do the whole main you know segment of the show, uh, and we have some stuff we normally would have done at the beginning that we'll do then. Uh, we're starting a new segment called uh, This Week in Biden, uh, which uh, which we'll we'll do sort of an informal uh, you know informal version of uh, tonight. Uh, and uh, David Griskin is still on vacations. So we're not having outlaws and revolutionaries, but Vic Viana is going to do a substitute uh, music segment tonight. I'm uh, going to talk about Pink Floyd. That should be good. 
Uh, but uh, I want to bring on uh, Conrad, Matt, and Marion in just a second. But uh, there are a couple things I do have to real quickly plug first. Uh, so uh, the uh, the first one uh, is that since uh, this is uh, March first in uh, exactly uh, in exactly two months uh, on May Day, uh, my new book comes out from uh, Zero Books: Canceling Comedians While the World Burns: A Critique of the Contemporary Left. Uh, you can pre-order that from a bunch of places, uh, but uh, the one that I'd recommend is Red Emma's, which is a worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore. So that's redemmas.org, and then you know just look it up there. Um, and then uh, the uh, the second thing is that uh, there is going to be so Michael Albert. People might remember when he was on the show a month or two ago. I don't know. Time is a flat circle; it all blurs together. Uh, but uh, he uh, runs this uh, school for social and cultural change, uh, which does eight-week online classes, uh, and it's you know for the masses. Uh, so it's not like college tuition where you have to mortgage your house to uh, to go. Uh, it's it's a very you know very modestly priced and you know sliding scale and all that good stuff. Uh, so uh, there are a bunch of people. Uh, there are a bunch of interesting people like Noam Chomsky who are going to be teaching classes there. Uh, eight, week, eight week online classes in April and May. Uh, I am going to be doing one uh, called uh, Logic for uh, Left Wing Debaters and Activists. Uh, so uh, that is again starting in uh, in April, but it op- it's officially open for enrollment today. Uh, the uh, so it's an eight week course. Uh, so it covers a lot of stuff that's in the first book. Uh, covers some stuff that's going to be in the new book, uh, covers some stuff that's not neither one, but that's really interesting, like the uh, analytic Marxism of uh, G.A. Cohen. Uh, so if uh, so, that's SSCC, School of Social and Cultural Change, .teachable.com. Uh, if, you, uh, if you want to, uh, to sign up for that course or you know, go check out any of the other courses there that are being taught by other people this April, uh, this April and May. Final thing uh, before I bring everybody on, uh, the uh, patron uh, bonus episode uh, for um, uh, this week, uh, which is uh, so episode 37, I believe, uh, is uh, is going to which drops as always for patrons on Thursday. We're trying to do more sort of pure philosophy episodes. So this one is going to be a beginner's guide to Kant uh, with um, Matt McManus, who you'll see in a second, uh, Russ Sabriglia, uh, and, um, and then... Um, uh, Ryan Lake. Uh, so I think this could be beginner's guide to Kant part one, actually, because there's a lot to cover there and we're only going to have about an hour for this. Uh, but, um, we, uh, so we'll talk about all that again later, but right now I want to, uh, get straight, uh, to the, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, uh, trigger warning. There is going to be a lot of Jordan Peterson that you're going to be exposed to, uh, tonight, you know, in, uh, in clips. So, you know, you were warned. All right. Uh, so we have uh, Matt McManus, Conrad Hamilton, uh, and Marion Trejo, uh, the three people who between them wrote the bulk of Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of uh, Jordan Peterson. So uh, we're going to start up the subjecting people to clips of Peterson pretty quickly. Uh, but uh, before I further traumatize uh, everybody uh, with, uh, with all of that, I uh, want to give everybody a chance to, uh, to introduce themselves. So, Matt. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I'm a professor of politics at Whitman College. Uh, I'm also one of the authors of Myth and Mayhem, uh, and 
a lot of the other stuff that I do is writing on postmodern conservatism. Uh, you can see my book uh, for zero uh, on that topic. Uh, and on occasion, I also contribute things to Jacobin, Marion West, and a few other outlets, usually on hot topics of the day. Uh, but every now and then, I also do like to delve into pure philosophy and pure theory, uh, including tomorrow when we're going to be talking about Kant. So that's kind of my stick. Sounds good. Conrad. Hi. Uh, I'm uh, Conrad Hamilton. Uh, I'm Canadian, but uh, I live in Paris now, uh, where I'm completing uh, my PhD, uh, which deals with... Um, the way that categories of social agency uh, in the work of Marx are issue, in a sense, from economic structures or the form of value. But, you know, can't really get it out now. But uh, I'm one of the uh, uh, the co-authors of, uh, obviously, uh, uh, Myth and Mayhem. My, my section focused broadly uh, on uh, sort of Peterson's critiques of postmodern neo-Marxism, uh, exploring, um, you know, the uh, legitimacy of those critiques. Uh, and like Matt, I write for a number of uh, different outlets. So I've contributed to uh, Marion West, um, Ario, uh, my first, or for, I think hopefully our first article will be coming out on Zizek uh, in Jacobin uh, shortly. So, and this is my second appearance uh, on Ben's show, which I, which I enjoy a great deal. So. All right. Thanks, Conrad. Marion? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Marion. Uh, I'm married to Matt. <laughs> And uh, for important part, no, no, I'm Mexican, currently living in Toronto. I used to be a professor back there in Mexico of politics. I was like a professor for undergrads for around like six years. And then I decided to go back to school and complete like my PhD. So now I'm like a, a PhD student and uh, I'm, I'm I'm working or um I hope to to work a thesis on um, kind of a, a political economy of fear from kind of like a Marxist tradition. Uh, so that's that's cool. a little bit of yeah. Nice. All right. Well, let's let's get right to the uh, the, the subjecting everybody's psyches uh, to uh, to these uh, these clips. Uh, and yes, the fact that I was able to uh, abuse my power as a boss to force Forrest to watch so much Jordan Peterson over the course of the last week to uh, to harvest these clips is probably an argument against capitalism in itself. Uh, but let's uh, let's watch this first one. It's kind of organization a is the rule among animals that live somewhat socially, and even those who don't that occupy the same geographical territory. There has to be some way of organizing access to relatively scarce resources that doesn't result in chronic combat. Because chronic combat, well look, you're Ren A and you're Ren B and you decide to have it out so you peck yourselves half to death. And you're Ren C and so you got a little bit more patience. You just wait until those two Rens beat each other to death and then you move in. It's like it's a stupid solution. It doesn't even work for wrens, let alone people. And so, you know, the wrens announce their prowess and they do that with the quality of their song and their displays and, and they, they indicate to one another who shouldn't be messed with and then there's a minimum of combat. And you could make a pretty good case that that's power, that that's power. But like, it's not like wrens get together and build like wren apartment houses and then, and then go out on collective worm hunt insects, I guess, collective 
insect hunting expeditions and bring them all back and distribute them or, 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 or make insect farms so that there's more insects for all the wrens. They haven't got that far, you know. They're competing in a zero-sum game. And that isn't what human beings do. We figured out how to not have zero-sum games a very, very long time ago. And it turns out that if the game you're playing isn't zero-sum, right, it, which means that there's only a finite number of resources and everybody has to fight to the death for them, and some are going to get the lion's share and others are going to starve, if you're not playing a zero-sum game, then you can learn to cooperate and compete in an intelligent, civilized manner, and all of a sudden, there's more than enough for everyone. Now, still, some people are going to have more than other, others, you know, and, but there's nothing. To, how are you going to stop that? And do you want to? Like, do you want to only know what, do you, do you want to only be allowed to know what everyone else knows? You don't get to know anything that, no one, that anyone else knows, because it's got to be equal. You want everyone to be exactly the same amount of attractive. You know, which, and if you averaged attractiveness overall and you only allowed each person to be as attractive as the average person, there'd be not much attractiveness left in the world. And it seems to me that that would be quite the loss, you know. And strength, you're not allowed to have any additional strength or, 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 or ambition or talent or, or, ac or, or, let's say, athletic ability. It's like, or artistic ability. I mean, aren't we kind of happy that there's massive inequality in the distribution of talent i know it's it's i know it's harsh and hard but you you can't expect everybody to have every talent that there is and it would be a hell of a sacrifice if no one got to have any talent because it wouldn't be fair and so i don't get the whole equality of outcome thing it it, it isn't it isn't going to work there aren't that many geniuses you know we want to exploit the geniuses and get them to work for us and if the, if, the, if the price is is that somebody has more than you do of something, well, suck it up for Christ's sake. Well, Jesus, seriously, man. It's like, look, how much more do you have than most people have? You know, you, you, need, you need to make $30,000 a year to be in the top 1% of the socioeconomic distribution worldwide. You know, you always hear about the 1%. Right, the evil 1%. And they churn, by the way, because it's not the same people all the time. It's like all of you here are in the evil 1%, and you think, well, that's not very fair because I was really only talking about within my country. My, well, that's convenient for you, you know, or it, it makes it really, really convenient argument for you. It's like, well, all those other people, those foreigners, they don't count. If they're poor, who the hell cares? It's, 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 it's the Australians that matter. You know, and so, no, that's, that's, that's a non-starter. You know, and, and by historical standards, you're doing a hell of a lot better than the top 1%. I can tell you that. I read a nice article by a, a, a coalition called Human Progress the other day, and they were comparing the typical middle-class person who lives now with uh, Rockefellers in the 19, 1919s and say, well, would you rather be a middle-class person now or Nelson Rockefeller in 1919? And the answer seemed pretty damn clear that well, you know, if you were Nelson Rockefeller, then you would have been richer than anyone else. And there's something to be said for that status, right? Because people do like to have more than others. It's a, it's a, I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but it is one of the things that we like. And so you'd have that. You'd be richer than everyone else. But 
there'd be all sorts of things that you have that now that Nelson Rockefeller wouldn't have had a hope of purchasing, like the antibiotics that he would have needed to stop his son from dying, for example, you know, just as a start. And so, so I think this, 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 this complaint about inequality, look, no one likes inequality exactly. You walk down the street, this is why I always get a kick out of people who protest, uh, I'm against poverty. It's like, really? You're against poverty, and, and you think that's a unique enough attribute so that it was worth your time to make a sign that said that you were against poverty and show other people. It's like, I've never met, I've never met anyone that was for poverty. You know, you walk down the street with someone who's pretty well off, you know, and they've got 1920s spats on and a bowler, and they're feeling pretty damn rich, and a stockster certificate sticking out of their back pocket, and, you know, there's a homeless person there, and they give them a good kick, and they say, the more poverty, the better. It's like, no. You know, when people walk down the street, and you see homeless people, and they're often, homelessness is a complex problem. Like, you think, well, homeless people are poor. It's like, yeah, yeah, man. That's like one problem they have out of 50. And like I've worked with poor people, you know, in my clinical practice, and poor in multiple dimensions. And many of them, you gave them money, they were just done. Especially if they were like alcoholics and cocaine addicts. As long as they were broke, they had some hope of living through the next month. But as soon as their unemployment check showed up, man, they were face down in the ditch three days later, right? Nothing but cocaine and alcohol with all their idiot friends for three days. And then they'd show up back in my practice saying, you know, God, I relapsed again. I said, well, what happened? Well, my money came in. It's like, yeah, money's really going to do you a hell of a lot of good. It just kill you faster than poverty. Now, not that there's anything good about poverty, but it's not like these are simple problems. You walk down the street and you see someone who's been an alcoholic for 20 years and maybe they're addicted to methamphetamines as well, or maybe they're schizophrenic. It's like... It isn't an equal distribution of monetary resources that are, is the primary cause for that problem, and it isn't going to be some sort of straightforward redistribution that's going to fix it, because it's way more complicated than that. Hi, everyone. As some of you may know, but others will not, it's been a long while since I put up any new content on this YouTube channel. I've been suffering from impaired health, severely impaired health, as a consequence of benzodiazepine use for anxiety, or more accurately, from a combination of using that medication and then ceasing its use once I realized it was dangerous. Um, that's put me in and out of hospitals for much of the last year in Connecticut, in the United States, in Toronto, in Canada, in Moscow, in Russia, and in Belgrade, Serbia, as my family searched for specialists who could aid me in the severe post-use withdrawal and neurological damage-related consequences of both the benzodiazepine use and, and its cessation. Um, 
I started taking it in 2016, 2017, early 2017, according to the prescribed um, recommendations, and really never give it a second thought. Uh, that was a mistake, uh, to say the least. Here's, here's another representation. This is a cool one. I've got a couple of them here that are really cool. This is from China. So this is... So this is Foxy and Nuwa. I think I've got that right. But I, I just love that representation. It's so insanely cool, this representation. So you see the sort of the primary mother and father of humanity emerging from this underlying snake-like entity with its tails tangled together. I think that's a I really do believe this, although it's very complicated to explain why. I really believe that's a representation of DNA. So... And that, that representation, that entwined double helix, that is everywhere. You can see it in, in Australian Aboriginal art. And I'm using the Australians as an example because they were isolated in Australia for like 50,000 years. They're the most archaic people that were ever discovered. And they have clear representations of these double helix structures in their art. So, and those are the two giant serpents out of which the world is made, roughly speaking. Okay. It's the same thing, you see that in the staff of Asclepius, which is the healing symbol that, that physicians use, although usually that's only one snake, but sometimes it's two. So, so, so that's, a, that's a Chinese representation. And then there's, a, there's this, that's the Egyptian representation. We talked about the Egyptian story the other day, right? We talked about Isis and Osiris. Yeah, so uh, that's that's a that's a good uh, cross section of uh, of what Peterson has been up to in uh, over the course of the last few years. Uh, if you know people are watching this on YouTube, there's a uh, there's there's a moment that I, I you can see me. I was muted, but started cracking up at a sort of odd and inappropriate moment. That's because uh, uh, Forrest uh, messaged me. Uh, we we're on the edge of the Australian bush when the benzo started to kick in, uh, but. Um, but I, I think the I think that cross section of clips, you know, gives you both a uh, a good sense of the, um, you know, the very odd. Well, I mean, there's a lot going on there, but maybe we can start here, right? So that the uh, that you see the political upshot of of Peterson's uh, shtick, and you know, and, and this is. I know a lot of people, you know, kind of have the, you know, attention span of a mosquito and they say, well, you know, why, why even talking about Jordan Peterson like this, this guy's yesterday's news, even though, you know, um, beyond order hasn't, you know, 12 more rules for life hasn't come out yet. And, uh, it comes out in two days and, uh, the original 12 rules for life still sells like, you know, two, 200 trillion copies a week in a slight exaggeration, but you know, not much, you know, check out Amazon's lists of, uh, you know, most read and, uh, and bought books of that week. Uh, and, and so he's, he's incredibly influential. I mean, even if it, it seems, uh, you know, odd to us that he might, he is, and, you know, you see the political upshot of what he's saying in the the first clip when he's talking about hierarchy. He's doing this this weird straw manny thing about how people who object to inequality are like objecting to inequality and and strength or talent or physical attractiveness, or that's that's sort of the same question as as inequality in uh, in material resources, uh, and uh, and you see 
this sort of odd mystical guru way that he justifies that stance, all the stuff about, you know, animals. And, um, and then at the, uh, at the end there, I mean, like that's, that's, I mean, it's kind of a remarkable thing that this is a, uh, this is a root. This is like a room full of adults who uh, he just told that the uh, twine snake artwork, like symbolism and ancient artwork is uh, a representation of the double helix structure of DNA, which was not discovered until the mid 20th century. And nobody laughs like, 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 like every, everybody just treats that as, as if he just, he just said something. Um, he just said something normal. So uh, there's a lot going on here. It's a perfect panel to break it down. Um, Matt, you want to get us started? Any thoughts? Sure. Well, I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, I think I'm just going to focus on the first clip for now. Um, and I just do want to say that uh, I do hope he's get be he gets better. And I'm happy he does seem to be doing better. Uh, nobody should hold uh, addiction against anyone else. Uh, and that includes Jordan Peterson. Right. No, uh, we, we, we should all have the we should all have the compassion towards his struggles with addiction that he so manifestly fails to have at the end of the first clip towards everybody else's struggles with addiction. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, so one of the things that's emblematic of modernity, right, is the commitment uh, in a principled way to the ideals of moral equality and freedom. And the two are fundamentally related in the sense that once you believe that people are moral equals, you think that there's something deeply wrong about using the state or imposing coercion to force someone to adopt your vision of the good life. Right? And we can have debates about how these principles are supposed to be cashed out, uh, but they've proven extremely popular and have had a long shelf life. Let's just put it that way. Right? Uh, one of the things that's characterized conservative thought has been resistance to both of them, uh, particularly the first principle of moral equality, but also the second principle uh, around freedom, uh, as long as freedom's not exercised in exactly the right way. Uh, and you've seen a lot of different reactionaries try to mount various different defenses of hierarchialization, stratification uh, and authoritarianism. Uh, some of those are quite innovative, but they usually tend to take two forms, right? Uh, and this is well known. Uh, one form is mythologization, uh, which is oddly enough usually associated with a kind of skeptical kind of reasoning, right? Uh, we can't know the universe, it's too big and too impossible to understand. Uh, only God can fully understand it, but uh, this is why we shouldn't question the way things are, including established hierarchies, right? Uh, the other kind of way that this is typically justified is through naturalization, as is well known, right? Uh, which is what you also saw him do, right? Uh, in the animal kingdom, we see that bigger apes mess up smaller apes. Uh, this goes to prove that this is just the way of things. Science demonstrates it. Facts don't care about your feelings. Ergo, we're always going to have hierarchies, right? Uh, and I think that there's a certain amount of truth to some of these descriptive observations, right? I mean, sure, fair enough. You can say that there are certain hierarchies that exist in the animal kingdom. Uh, you can also say that certain kind of hierarchies are useful in human social life, right? Uh, but all of this is really straw manning the modernist commitment uh, to moral equality and freedom, uh, since, of course, no one denies that you're going to need hierarchies of certain sort, right? Uh, parents will certain sense need to have a certain degree of control over their children. Uh, if we're playing a board game and I happen to be winning, uh, that's not because I'm oppressing you in any way, shape, or form. It's just because we're engaging in a voluntary activity and I happen to be doing somewhat better at you know, this. Uh, the question has always been what kind of hierarchies can be justified, right? Uh, and this is where I think he really falls off the rails a lot uh, since he tends to not even really argue for, but just imply uh, that contemporary inequality as it stands right now is somehow justifiable because either it's mythologically necessary or naturally inevitable. Uh, and I think that that's completely bogus, right? 
Uh, I don't see any particularly compelling reason why it is that Jeff Bezos uh, needs to be worth $200 million. Uh, and at the same time, he has to be running a charity uh, where people can donate for his workers uh, because apparently they're not able to earn enough in between you know, using their piss jugs uh, in order to put food on their table. Right? There's absolutely nothing that's natural, inevitable, or mythologically necessary about that. Yeah, right? and, and, and I do want to just just underline one thing you said before we let- 200 billion, by the way, 200 billion. 200 billion, 200 million. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which actually he's, um, because his business picked up so much at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, because everybody was using Amazon more, uh, it's going to be several years you know, before he gets there if he does. But, you know, last summer there were stories that came out in the business press saying that he is on track uh, in the next several years to become the world's first trillionaire. Uh, so, uh, but you know, for now he has to make do with the 200 billion. Yeah. A modest accomplishment. Right. And (laughs) just long story short, like I just wanted to finish by saying, you know, uh, like all conservatives, um, reactionaries, those of us who are committed to the principles of modernity, freedom and equality, uh, should try to pick holes in their argument. Uh, and I think that Peterson is a pretty decent conservative intellectual, right. As they stand. And I spent a lot of time reading these people. Uh, he's certainly not up there. I would think with somebody like Edmund Burke or, um, even you know a darker thinker uh, like Friedrich Nietzsche uh, or Martin Heidegger, uh, but this kind of mythologization, naturalistic synthesis he's put forward doesn't make a lot of coherent sense. Uh, but it has a shelf life because it appeals to a lot of people's intuitions. And one of the reasons I think it was important for us to produce the book was precisely to offer a substantial intellectual rebuttal uh, to the kind of arguments he was put forward. Uh, yeah, whether it's yeah. done that, I don't know, but I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I, if I do say so myself, but I have, uh, but I, I did just want to underline what you said about the naturaliz- naturalization mythology. They said, uh, because if, if anybody, uh, you know, for anybody who's reading this for who's uh, listening or to this or watching it on YouTube, who, uh, who hasn't uh, read this, uh, I would, uh, I think a absolutely essential uh, book about um everything that you're you're saying right now matt uh you know that the actually came out exactly the same time ours did uh was michael brooks's uh against the web and uh, that's yeah. one of the big organizing themes of the book that uh, he talks about how you know well reactionaries in general although he's talking about the intellectual dark web in particular uh tend to use these these two big strategies they they either uh naturalize or mythologize uh existing hierarchies uh, so naturalizing them, you know, this this is the the Sam Harris Lane, or really in, in a more extreme way, the Charles Murray Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, where yeah, much you, more extreme in his case. Yeah, although you know Harris has somewhat defended that, but yeah, uh, but um, that uh, where you say that uh, well, science tells us that we have to have uh, these these hierarchies, or they can't be overcome, or whatever, and uh, mythologizing. Uh, is, you know, I mean, it's what um, Marx is reacting to in the introduction of the critique of the philosophy of right when, you know, he has that famous passage about the opium of the people, uh, you know, which is uh, saying, oh, we have to have, so, you know, the existing social hierarchies because, you know, the gods have ordained it or, you know, something like that, you know, very different versions of that in different societies that have existed at different times. And one of the things that makes Peterson's, you know, sort of perversely interesting as kind of a reactionary is that he just slides back and forth, like almost like, um, you know, seamlessly between the two modes. You know, he, he just, he just does lots of both of these things all the time. Half the time he's appealing to science, half the time he's saying that, you know, we need, um, 
you know, we need to have, uh, you know, we, we can't try to redistribute wealth because then we'll be letting the dragon of chaos and to, you know, to, to disrupt, uh, you know, the, um, you know, to disrupt the principles of order. Uh, but Marion Conrad thoughts. I can, uh, I can jump in there. Um, yeah, I thought some of your comments were interesting. I mean, it occurred to me that in Peterson's talk, there was a tension when he talked about inequality between two views, right? And one of those, which is very characteristic Peterson, um, is the idea that, um, you know, these these, inequ these inequalities which prevail in nature. I don't even know what a wren is. I actually don't know what animal that bird. is. So someone, it's a bird, okay. Um, I'm, I'm sure it doesn't matter too much anyway. Um, there are these inequalities which prevail uh, in nature. But on the other hand, he said something else, which is interesting. He said that, um, but, you know, we're not in a zero-sum game anymore, right? And what he alluded to was, you know, society uh, having the capacity to produce resources well in excess of what nature can provide, right? Um, so he's talking about, you know, the, the increasing of productivity and, and the generation of wealth. And I think it's very interesting because he already draws a connection in that talk between, um, you know, elusively, between uh, inequality and the capacity to go beyond the zero-sum game, right? So I think I think the, the, an interesting question to ask would be, why is it the case, right, you know, that this tremendous, uh, uh, you know, increase in productivity, which has defined modernity and industry and so forth, why has it uh, led to such a high degree uh, of inequality, right? And I think what you have to say is that, yes, on one side, Right. We can say that, you know, the great achievement of capitalism is that, you know, it's it's led to greater productivity than ever before. Not that that hasn't had consequences. Right. Look at the environmental crisis, for example. But that the way that it's been done right through, uh, you know, essentially the exploitation of wage labor, um, you know, tendentially creates greater stratifications. I think it's safe to say than than, you know, comparable precedents in the natural world. But that's not a tension that's really addressed. Uh, in his talk. In fact, as regards inequality in general, it's interesting, right? Because um, you were talking about straw manning, right? You know, Marx says in the Paris manuscripts, he says very explicitly that, uh, you know, the problem uh, with capitalism is that it doesn't permit, uh, you know, the expression of uh, the virtues of individuals, right? Or it, it obscures them, right? Obfuscates them, right? He says, you know, I'm ugly, but I can have the most, you know, the most beautiful wife, right? Uh, you know, I'm crippled, but I have 10 servants. Now, now one could argue that, um, you know, Marx doesn't go far enough in associating uh, these advantages, which he separates from the category of money, um, you know, uh, with uh, capitalism. I mean, Pierre Bourdieu remarks, for example, that in some sense, beauty is aleatory and genetic. In another sense, uh, you know, you do find that characteristically, the people who are deigned to be the most attractive come from the wealthiest places. Right? Why is whiteness valorized in terms of beauty across the world? Right? So there's still some kind of kind of connection there. Um, but what I want to stress is just that in terms of this naturalization of inequality, which is you know incoherently presented, I think, um, in the talk we watch, um, if you don't have this, Peterson's whole system uh, really falls apart. Yeah, and and right. I, I, I should say too, like I think that. Yeah, I mean, and, and and that recognition of natural inequality, I mean, is like it's not just in the early stuff, the Paris manuscripts. It goes throughout uh, Marx's career in the uh, in uh, the um, in the first chapter of the Critique of the Gotha Program. You know, he he talks about how, in fact, one of his objections 
uh, to uh, the, the Lasallians, this other faction in the German socialist mm -hmm. movement, saying that they're uh, everybody should uh, equally get the full product of their labor. First, he points out that that's you know inconsistent, right? If if it's if it's the full product of the labor everybody puts in, then it's not equal, right? You know, and then he says that this would actually just be a natural aristocracy because some people you know work harder than others, some people are stronger than others, some people are smarter than others, uh, mm -hmm. and um, so so again, it's, it's something that I think he, he always has well honed recognition of. And uh, I would just have a quick shout out. So uh, Peter Fraze wrote a book called Four Futures, Life After Capitalism, uh, which was originally a Jacobin article then it was expanded into a short book. And I don't agree with Fraze about everything, but I mean, like he's very good in this article, in this book, talking about this, this subject of hierarchies, you know, because his position, you know, what he says, and I think this is kind of seems to be what Marx thought, is look, nobody thinks that you're going to have a society without any hierarchy of any kind, even status, Right. But the kinds of, and this goes to the Marx quote that you're talking about, Conrad, the kinds of status hierarchies that we would have in an uh, economically egalitarian society would be different and better because um, they wouldn't all be organized around the one central defining hierarchy of uh, money uh, that they, yep. uh, that be, you know, that's, you could, you know, look, if you can't, uh, you know, if you can't find recognition within one status hierarchy, it's a lot easier to find it in another uh, in a society where you don't have one that sort of tends to envelop all the others in its gravitational orbit. Uh, but yeah, and, and I do want to point out, by the way, you're, you're talking, uh, the first part of the talk was talking about the Rens and all that stuff, mm -hmm. just, just as a, like, it, it's honestly in a, in a way it's like the least of what's wrong with what he's saying but it's also uh worth pointing out that he that this the stuff about uh you know oh yeah homeless people sure you know they, they're poor but you know that's like one of 50 problems whatever uh and then he's kind of talking about his anecdotal impressions of you know homeless people he worked with as a uh, uh clinical psychiatrist um psych sorry clinical psychologist but he uh but there is actually empirical work on this. Like there, there mm. have been studies where, you know, where like there are different entities, local governments and stuff that have uh, given homeless people a place to live and financial support for like six months. And the, ev the evidence seems to pretty clearly show that in fact, most, for most people that is enough for them to get their life together, you know, that they, they have that. Um, so, you know, this, this idea, I mean, that, um, that oh this is you know this is just a problem with uh, with personal character you know that mm -hmm. is, is what he's implying uh, is you know again just doesn't seem to be borne out empirically and it, and it's also we might, well, we might have to ask why those how those social pathologies are produced in the first place right right you know of course I'm not denying that they can happen to anyone right but I think that you know there's plenty of statistical data that indicates that you know things like drug problems alcohol problems are not independent right of social and material circumstances so there's already a fallacy. No, for, for, you know, for sure. Right. I mean, like, and, and there's a, and you can hold two thoughts in your head here, right. You can have, I mean, clearly, right. As Peterson himself shows, right. You can have these problems due to other causes without, you know, material deprivation. Uh, but, you know, it's also a little silly to pretend that it's like a coincidence that uh, they tend to spike at the same time as, economic crashes, you know, uh, mm -hmm. deindustrialization, you know, things like that, that, you know, that, that on a statistical level, you know, they, they do tend to be caused by that. But, uh, Marion, I uh, haven't, uh, you know, haven't heard from you. 
You know, I was just uh, thinking of everything that you said, and I actually agree. Like, to me, he has a very, like, contradictory view of nature sometimes he says like no like as you mentioned right the whole lobster issue no like uh, like our orga- social organization should reflect nature on the one on the one hand and at some other point he believes like in of course like he has a whole book on maps of meaning and how <laughs> important is like like to go like a cultural creations like to go beyond nature but i was going to say that uh one of the things that he also fails to me to to be kind of uh, uh, precise to is when he yeah when he speaks of inequality difference and hierarchy right because just uh, and also as a feminist right the whole feminist issue is just because there's like a sexual difference that shouldn't mean there should be a hierarchy there right which Peterson fails to like acknowledge the fact that just uh, like certain differences given by nature are not just justifiable to maintain them as a social hierarchy, right? And um, and as you said, I, I was also thinking when you were mentioning, yeah, it, like certain uh, political projects don't advocate for, the, for erasing uh, hierarchies, uh, just the ones that, for example, are um, given by money. And I was just thinking, precisely on the whole idea of meritocracy and how talent and, and the idea of talent, right? And I think Peter's on fault, like he's very critical on his meritocratic view, right? It's like, oh no, like his whole problem with the quality of, of outcome that it's also so misguided too, right? But his whole issue is like, oh no, we, we want everyone to have the same talents. It's like, no, like JP, right? Like you can have different talents, just that talent should be, shouldn't be the only measure uh, for your value and for the like the access to opportunities that you should have, right? And that's also like okay, let's give him. Let's also let's take for granted the fact, like okay, talent is the measure because he loves to talk about talent, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the people that we think they are talented, they are not even that talented, right? Think about Elon Musk, right? He's not even the one behind the whole thing. Like he wants to get to Mars and that's his idea, right? But he's not the one actually like making the scientific improvements to get there, right? Like he hires the talented people, but he, he keeps the money, right? So, which, which is, I feel like a distinction that there would be that, that somebody like Peterson would have no trouble making in the context of a different social system. Uh, like, you know, Cuba, uh, actually is, is the, is the, uh, has like a lot of, um, like, uh, biotech, you know, that they, they've, they've, they've advanced in a lot in that in the last, in the last several decades. And a big part of the reason why is I think there was just a point in the eighties when, you know, Fidel Castro sort of decided that this is something that they'd be good at and that they should try to start to do. And I don't think that your Petersons or your, you know, like, like any of these people, these, these reactionaries who really valorize, uh, you know, entrepreneurs would say, "Oh my God, Fidel Castro is such a genius because you know because uh, because Cuba has these biotech developments." I think in that case, he'd be able to recognize, "Oh, the person making the decision, you know, is is not you know in the lab figuring out how to implement it." Although, in Elon Musk's case, even the people in the lab usually aren't very good at it. I mean, I always think he's kind of like a like a version of a James Bond villain, who's like, but the thing that was would lower him and you know would lower. Uh, you know, Commander Bond into the, you know, the, the, um, 
into the pool with the sharks or whatever wouldn't actually work. You know, he'd like give a press conference about how amazing it was, but then it would like stall halfway down. Uh, but you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the, uh, the gender stuff and that, that is the, uh, the next, um, and, and that sort of slippage, that fallacious inference that Peterson makes, uh, which is, uh, you know, from uh, the existence of differences to the existence of social hierarchies uh, based on uh, those differences. Uh, Forrest, do we have that clip? So, because because this is something I, I think is really central. Um, which which one did we end up choosing? Um, I, I have uh, him talking about the gender pay gap. I thought maybe it was a good one for... Oh, okay, yeah, let's do that one. Okay. So, because uh, th this is something that I, I think is like really central to, um, you know, to to Peterson's, uh, you know, to Peterson's work, like to the point where like it almost seems sometimes like a, um, it's it's like a, um, it's almost like a shell game, right? You know, come for the sexism, you know, stay for the uh, capitalist apologetics. Uh, but yeah, Forrest, let's watch this that really famous instance at the University of Toronto where this one guy, I, I don't even remember what Warren his book. Farrell. Yes. What why was his men book make about? More. Yeah. Why men make more. Yeah, it, was, it was a multivariate analysis of the, of the uh, uh, income disparity between men and women. He used to be a, 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 a feminist activist. He decided to go look into the claim that, you know, women were making, I think at the time it was 70 cents for every dollar that men were making. He thought, well, I have daughters. I better go check this out and see, you know, do a little bit of in-depth investigating. And he, what he found out was that there were many reasons for the disparity. And perhaps one of them was unfair discrimination, but there were another dozen and they seemed to account for more of the disparity than the discrimination. I mean, just the fact that men take the more dangerous jobs is a, is a huge contributor to that. And it's not trivial. You should get paid more if you're putting your limbs on the line. You know, I mean, I grew up in northern Alberta where, where where a lot of young men dropped out of school and went and worked on the oil rigs. It's like, you go try that. Well, maybe you could do it. But, you know, the guys would lose their fingers. They'd lose their toes. They'd It was 40 bloody below up there, and they'd be wrestling pipe in the middle of the bush. I have a friend who does it. I have a friend who does that in yeah. northern Alberta. It's right. horrific. It is. It's tough work, man. And you're about, out in the bush for two weeks. Yeah, when you go outside, there's temperatures where you literally can't be outside of your truck for more than 30 minutes. Right. You yeah. have to jump back in the truck yeah, and you're almost dying. That was called dying. life where yeah. I grew up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, those are very difficult jobs you, and they're very high paying because people die. Yeah, yeah they're and, hard work. And they're there's hard, not a lot of women jobs. taking those jobs. No, and, and, and a good thing too. So this guy, um, I'm sorry, what is his name again? Warren Farrell. Warren Farrell, who wrote this book, was giving a speech about this book, and it the, the, the response was so unbelievably violent and crazy and aggressive and also ignorant, ignorant to what he was saying, ignorant and not, not wanting to debate the facts, yeah. but wanting to call him a misogynist, wanting to call this uh, – I mean, you know, um, women die during childbirth as well. You know, it's just a very strange thing. I mean, like, you know, yeah, there are, you use a multivariate analysis. There are many reasons why, you know, and I think turn this over to Mary in a second, but there are many reasons why uh, uh, women make less than men. But but let's just start with certain basic axioms here. Why is it that that, you know, taking care of children isn't paid? 
right? Obviously, that's essential for the reproduction of our economy. Well, and, and right? just, so it's, just, it's, a, it's a consequence of a productive system and a certain kind of productive organization. Right. I mean, if you look at, they say that gender equality was relatively common amongst American slaves because you didn't have a situation where you had a man who uh, controlled the, the income of the family. Well, right? yeah. You know, they were both yeah. owned by in foraging societies. I mean, most, most yeah. anthropologists yeah. recognize that it was very equal. So so I just fail to see what the, what the point would be, yeah, in, in a certain specific kind of economic organization, of which there's been different instantiations in history, um, you can say that, you know, for multivaried reasons, men have an advantage, right? But there's nothing necessarily a priori about that. Yeah, I mean, just just to uh, just just to sort of um, further uh, mansplain this before turning it over, uh, the uh, uh, I, I would uh, I, I think that oil rig example is super interesting uh, because first of all, like people who worked on oil rigs were not paid more just as like a pure consequence of the fact that it was hard and dangerous work like that. That wasn't just some natural relationship that that just sort of like, Oh, you know, it would be impossible to have a society where you had hard and dangerous work, like working on oil rigs, you weren't paid more for it. Um, Cause as you point out, right. Childbirth is hard and dangerous and people do that for free. Uh, and um it's, I mean, presumably the uh, the pay rates that he's talking about were something that resulted from, you know, class struggle from the organization of industrial unions, you know, for by, you know, oil rig workers, you know, collectively organizing, you know, to demand the higher wage rate. And it's it's not at all true in the, in the, you know, in contemporary Canadian or American society that there's some general relationship across the board between how hard or dangerous some work is and how much people are paid for it. I mean, if anything, we've kind of seen with the, uh, the pandemic, you know, that, uh, that so-called essential workers, you know, who are asked to uh, literally risk their lives uh, in order to, uh, to do their jobs uh, tend to actually be paid much less uh, than, uh, than people with, um, you know, professional cast sort of jobs where you can just be given an employer laptop and say, Oh, yeah, I'd just like to say, uh, one of my best friends is a boilermaker uh, in Sarnia, right? I won't say his name in case he wants his privacy. Uh, but he's a good leftist, and I think the way that he would respond to this, in fact, I know the way he would respond to this because we talked about it, is uh, first off, don't fucking invoke uh, what it is that I do to justify some people getting paid more uh, than others because what I want is a world where, A, fewer people have to do these kind of dangerous jobs, and B, uh, where everyone gets a decent wage, and C, uh, where hopefully and eventually uh, there won't be need for anyone to do these kinds of jobs because we'll live in a world where it's considered barbaric to ask people to go die no matter how much money they get paid, right? Um, so I think that there's something really slippery uh, about a lot of those a lot of the reasoning that's going on there. But I'll, I'll leave it to Marion since we we're talking about the gender issue. Yeah, no, I I wanted to go back to something that Ben said, which is like, yeah, like, but this has to do partially with the like, class struggle, of course, on the side of like unionized workers and stuff. But I was just going to say, too, uh, it also has to do with what we value in our society. Like, o like all our lives are like it, like the whole like market capitalism that, that we have is based on the consumption of oil, right? As a main, one of the main things that drives our like uh, like energy consumption. So it also has to do with like what we value, like or what capitalism values, like as important industries, and the fact that there's more money put in there, right? Like no, like it, if there like more people care about green technologies, like there will be way far more money put in there, right? Maybe workers will make more money there than elsewhere, right? But not just, 
I like for my first point was like there's a lot of feminists that recognize that the gender gap is a multivariant analysis. Actually, today I don't think I know like people that do this for a living that will say it's only about this issue, right? Like, uh, and I say people that do this for a living, like people that specialize on this, right? I do know some sort of militant feminists that do tend to reduce the issue, but as I said, the people that are like in most of the times that uh, that do it, uh, like you know, uh, that specialize in this, they do recognize it, right? We have, for example, intersectional analysis. That the whole point of intersectional analysis is to say, well, it has to do with race, right? It has to do also with geography. It's not the same to be a woman in the global south that in you know, like the north and developed countries and. Uh, to me, what strikes me the most when I like listen to P P uh, Peterson's videos is that he says, no, 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 like uh, there's no such issue as a gap because the dude that does the hard job, uh, should, if he risks his life, should be paid more. And it's like, what the gender gap, uh, sorry, what the, yeah, what the pay gap analy analyzes is they take it case by case, right? So for example, if Matt and I, who have PhDs, do the same work, do the same obligation, like have the same obligations, right? And he gets paid more. If we disqualify everything else, why does he get paid more, right? If let's say, like, there's a standard of like uh, expectations that we both meet, right? We have the same exact title, we have like a degree, even for like similar or the same university, right? Why is it that a man gets paid more? And then the only thing left to explain that is gender. And that's what this analysis wanna highlight. So just like the fact that Peterson jumps from this specific analysis that the pay gap like sees to the fact that, oh, but these dudes are risking his life. Like he should get more money. It's like, wait, what if you had a woman in that same thing? Like, let's look at the woman, right? That do that also, work and see right like in that industry do they get paid for that specific job do they get paid more get paid less and what we can conclude and what this pay gap analysis conclude is that even if it's certain industries women do get paid more for example because they are more like the, as a gender right like teachers right even then if you have certain sectors of the economy where women get paid more it doesn't account it doesn't give you it doesn't mean that there is no gender gap right yeah and, and i'll also add that something that conservatives are often will often point out here and they, they sort of in a weird way seem to see as a trump card in this discussion is that a lot of uh gender pay differentials can be uh, explained uh, by uh, by women with young children uh, not working or working, you know, fewer hours or, you know, or taking breaks in their careers and then coming back and then not, you know, being able to climb back up. And the way that they sort of treat this as a trump card is they'll say, oh, see, so this is just a matter of people making choices. This isn't unjust. It's not oppression, uh, which among other things, um, like, it just it just treats these these choices as if they take place in a vacuum and they they have nothing like I mean one you can talk about the cultural you know issues you know behind which choices which people make but also and honestly I would say more importantly you have uh, it it just treats the sort of choices that are available as if they're the only choices that could be available like like as if we couldn't have 
like, you know, generous state, you know, daycare, you know, as, as you know, that in order to change the choices that are available to, to opt between, you know, for, uh, for working women, it's, it, it's really, uh, it's really disingenuous and gross because it, it sort of takes a politics that's actually uh, very bad, you know, for, uh, for people trying to raise children uh, and justifies it by kind of using the children as props. Absolutely. Uh, this is one thing I wanted to say before um, we move on to the clips, right? And it pivots around this notion of merit, right? Uh, and before I say that, I'd like to point out that I'm not trying to denigrate the hard work that anybody uh, puts into doing what they're doing. Uh, if anything, one of the things that I think COVID exposed has exposed just spectacularly is how much our society depends uh, on a lot of people who work really fucking hard, whether you're talking about nurses or cashiers um, or the people who just drop off your food and very rarely get any kind of credit for that, right? So, but uh, at the essence uh, of my dispute with Peterson, and I imagine a lot of our uh, disputes with Peterson, uh, is this kind of problem of merit, right? Who gets what and do they deserve it? Uh, and I think one of the things that's worth noting is that uh, the two most important philosophers of the 20th century who addressed this question uh, both agreed that merit is such an ambiguous concept uh, that it doesn't really have a lot of application when it comes to issues of distributive justice. Uh, in fact, we're really living in a world uh, where the best attitude to take is uh, there but for the grace of God go I, right? Um, and the two philosophers um, that kind of came to this kind of conclusion uh, were F.A. Hayek and John Rawls, very different ends of the political spectrum. Uh, but one of the things that Hayek said is, look, you know, if you're in a capitalist market and you happen to be selling porn and you make a million dollars a year, uh, and that's not necessarily because you merit something more. It's just because you created more value. Uh, and because our society happens to value these things, uh, that's why you get paid more than a nurse or somebody who's doing UN aid in a foreign country, right? Doesn't have anything to do with personal worth, right? Uh, and I should point out Hayek is as well known was a right-wing economist, right? Uh, the other person who kind of addressed this, who I'm much more favorable to obviously is John Rawls, right? And uh, I think there are problems with Rawls. You need to complement with Marx for an analysis of power dynamics in society, amongst other things, not to mention the dialectic history. But one of the things he says is, look, like why do people get ahead, right? Uh, Peterson talks a lot about natural talents, right? Some people have higher IQs or some people are born stronger or faster or whatever the fuck it happens to be, right? And he'd say, well, that's just a genetic lottery, right? That has nothing to do with individual merit. Uh, and then he goes on to social factors and he said, look, some people are lucky enough to have their daddy read to them when they were a kid. Uh, and then they grow up to be literate people. Uh, others had parents who slapped them around when they were kids and they grow up to have a lot of problems, right? Uh, that's again, just morally arbitrary. It has nothing to do uh, with, you know, you personally. Uh, and then the third reason he says people get ahead is because you again happen to have something that's valued by the market, right? Uh, which is why you can sit there and sell methamphetamine uh, or crystal meth and make a lot of money. Uh, but if you decide to sell something like um, you know, a handbook to socialism, uh, you probably make a lot less money uh, than the Walter Wrights of the world, right? Uh, but that's not because the handbook to socialism is less worthwhile uh, than crystal meth. It's just because again, the market happens to reward you if you have the talent at producing crystal meth, uh, and it doesn't if you have a talent at writing on issues of social democracy and socialism, right? So you take all these three factors together and we really have a very, very ambiguous idea uh, whenever we appeal to something like merit. And it's quite telling that Peterson doesn't address any of these factors, uh, which have been well known in the literature for, I don't know, fucking 80 years now. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, and, and I think that certainly they, I mean, just to, just to put a bow on the, um, 
you know, the Rawls point, you know, which I think echoes that, that Marx thing about natural aristocracy we were talking about earlier. Uh, you know, there are lots of different things that, you know, they're like, you know, merit, right. You know, there are lots of different things that could conceivably be, be seen as, you know, meritorious and, you know, uh, in, in lots of different social you know, arrangements, you know, the skills that will, uh, allow you to uh, rise through the professional managerial class, you know, career, you know, educational and career hierarchy are very different than the skills that would earn you a place in like a warrior caste and different kind of society. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's a matter of, uh, of dumb luck, you know, whether you, you happen to be born in a society that rewards, uh, that rewards your particular uh, skills. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, uh, so Dave L, thank you for the super chat, says this point in the discussion, shout out Catherine Lou's Virtue Hoarder's book. It's a good read. Uh, it sounds like one. I have not read it. I've seen her talk about it. We'll definitely read that and have her on to talk about it at some point. Uh, I would also shout out Freddie DeBoer's book, uh, The Call to Smart, uh, which is uh, very good on the on the Rawlsian point. That uh, I haven't read that yet, but I, I really should. Thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah, yeah, you should. You should. Like, there was a lot of discussion about it that was like sort of about the like ten pages or whatever where he talks about genetics. Uh, but I think that it's, I I think that like honestly you could have cut that and the the whole book would have you know would have stood just as well, uh, you know, without it because you know his his basic point is about um, luck and it doesn't really matter whether it's genetic luck or socialization luck. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Conrad, I knew you wanted to uh, throw in before we moved on. Yeah, I just wanted to say quickly, it's also important to remember uh, the origin of where these terms come from, like merit, right? Um, so, you know, I think it was Michael uh, Michael Dunlap-Young wrote a book in 1958, um, and the title was um, The Rise of Meritocracy. And what he was partially satirizing uh, in the book uh, was this notion of a society based on merit. And if you look at, at, at again, the origin of a, of a society where the most you know, talented people will be successful. I mean, if you go back to, you know, the feudal era, obviously it would have been ridiculous to suggest that the most talented people are the most successful, right? Um, but uh, essentially, uh, after you uh, have things like the French Revolution, after you have the antecedents of modern democratic society, uh, which are established, um, you have this sort of effort to, uh, of people who were wealthy, right? Uh, to uh, channel the resources right, uh, and position themselves as being more talented than others. And nowhere is this clearer than if you look at Sciences Po in Paris, which is the most prestigious school in France, uh, I'm in Paris now, of course, um, there's the, the inaugural speech of Sciences Po, uh, I think it's the late 19th century, by its founder, Emile Boutmy. Uh, what he says basically in the speech, he's very, very candid about it. What he says is that, you know, the masses have risen up, right, against us, the wealthy, right, um, you know, and they're threatening to strip us of our position. Right. So what we need to do now is invest more and more in our resources uh, into actually accumulating genuine merits that will allow us to position ourselves as superior members of society and to justify right, our position. Um, so, again, I think when Jordan Peterson uses these words, it would be helpful as well to go back and to recognize how historically specific right, the discourse of merit, which he is dependent upon, right, is. I mean, you know, for much of human history, that just wouldn't have had, you know, much, much purchase at all. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, which is, oh, sorry, uh, Matt, real quick, and then let's watch the next clip. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you, Conrad. I mean, half the time when I was watching those clips, and before he wrote the book, I watched God only knows how many in addition to reading his books. But like a lot of the time, I'd just be like, just calm the fuck down, okay? I don't want to hear about Wrens. I don't want to hear about the double helix. I don't want to hear about, you know, how it is that if we look at Osiris and, you know, all that stuff, I just want you to give me three straight arguments for why we should hold to this political position. 
and I want you to give me three foils for each one, right? Who believes this? Why are they wrong? What should we do instead, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's rare. How, uh, it's very rare that you'll find that in his writing, right? It's usually just like the Wrens and then, you know, this guy in Northern Alberta. And then when we look at Young and then Nietzsche and then we'll go forward from that. And it's just like, calm down, okay? Three arguments, three fucking foils. Give it to me straight, okay? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I, especially because, you know, there's, there's a good... Um, uh, Natalie Wynn, you know, ContraPoints has a, uh, has a really good uh, video uh, essay on Peterson where, where she makes the point that this whole sort of uh, structure of, um, you know, what we can generously call argument that he uses, you know, against, um, against socialism and against sort of SJW-ish progressives, and he kind of equates the two, uh, you know, could just as easily have been used for literally to oppose literally any other form of social progress that you, that, you know, cause this whole thing that, well, look, uh, people objecting to this specific social hierarchy, uh, you know, whether it's, it's, uh, you know, traditional gender roles or, you know, the, uh, economic hierarchies of capitalism or whatever, uh, don't understand that, uh, you know, even lobsters and wrens have hierarchies and, you know, goes so deep in our nature and, the only way to try to make everything perfectly equal would be by inviting some nightmarish gulag state and, you know, all this stuff. Like you could use this entire edifice rhetorically to, a, you know, like, like a, an 18th century, you know, Royalist opposing the French revolution could have used it. A 19th century, you know, antebellum uh, Southerner could have used it opposed to, you know, the abolition of slavery, like, like they, cause, cause what is it special about this particular attempt to undo this hierarchy that goes against, you know, the uh, principles of order and nature and, you know, all that stuff, um, you know, which, which again goes back to that, you know, distinction and Michael distinction against the web about how, you know, the left essentially um, uh, historicizes, uh, social hierarchies shows that they came about in certain circumstances and, you know, and, and could potentially, you know, go out of existence in other historical circumstances. Uh, whereas people like Peterson always want to either naturalize or mythologize it, which is a, a good uh, lead in uh, to, uh, to talking about one of my uh, favorite Peterson moments. So this is after uh, our friend, uh, past guest, uh, Richard Wolf uh, had uh, invited him uh, to, um, a debate uh, back in 2018, uh, you know, obviously before he decided eventually that he was going to accept the invitation from uh, from Slavoj Žižek, uh, and this is Peterson's response to Wolf. There's this professor, I think his name is Wolf. Um, he put a challenge up on YouTube to me a couple of weeks ago to debate him, and um, what did he tell? What did he say? He said, he, he criticized my criticism of Marx. He said, well, that Peterson, you know, he's basically stuck in 1989. It's like, we've progressed way past the time of the Stalinists. It's like, and I thought, well, how about if a Nazi said that? Just out of curiosity. It's like, well, it's not 1945, you know, anymore. It's like us national socialists, we've, we've progressed way past what happened in Nazi Germany. It's like, we should just, for, don't be stuck in the past, right? It's time to give us another chance. It's like... Well, how about no? How about how about how about uh, well, we have the Soviet Union with the 20 million dead there, and we have Mao's China with God only knows how many people were killed there, and we have Cambodia, we have Vietnam, and Venezuela isn't looking that great, by the way, and Cuba can't feed itself, and that's just a smattering of 
Marxist catastrophes. It's like, well, how much evidence do you need exactly? And, and, and here's also what I think about modern Marxists. This is what they think. First of all, they think they're driven by compassion, and they're not, because they're not saints. And second, what they truly believe is, well, you know, everyone so far that's implemented Marxism, they weren't really the true acolyte of Marx that I am. They didn't have the real insight into the Marxist philosophy that I do. If I would have been running the Soviet Union instead of Stalin, I would have ushered in the communist utopia. When the truth of the matter was, is that had you been a genuinely compassionate, compassionate Marxist in 1915, your head would have been among the first on the chopping block. You can be absolutely certain of that. So I don't buy any of it. And I don't understand for the life of me why it's any more permissible in polite society to proclaim proudly that you're a Marxist after the absolute catastrophe of the 20th century than it is to claim that you're a national socialist. So that's how it looks to me. I'm no fan of left-wing collectivists or those on the right for that matter. We'll talk so. about that in, an, in, a, in a moment. Um, All right. Well, it's, have, uh, it's called the monopoly. Uh, so I have, uh, have a bunch of stuff to, uh, to say about that, but uh, first let's throw to the panel. Can I just say that one of the things that pisses me off more than anything else about this is I give, I give him 5% on this, right? I do think that there were massive catastrophes committed in the name of Karl Marx and that any sensible leftist who wants to employ him has to acknowledge that and you should try to be winning converts, right? Uh, rather than just ignoring that's a problem. Uh, and I think people have been aware of this since John Lennon wrote Revolution uh, and he said, you know, you don't go winning friends by talking about Chairman Mao, right? You know, sometimes you got to you got to reinvigorate someone, right? Uh, at the same time, Jesus Christ, he Matt, has uh, you're really upsetting me here. The line is, uh, if you go around carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, no one's want to get good and want to get with you anyhow. Uh, very, very true. Okay, my bad. But uh, um, don't, don't the quote that incorrectly on this show. I won't. Uh, no, I, not, I in Britain, not in Britain in the '60s, anyway. The context vary. We should acknowledge. Yeah, but I mean, the thing is, he's far more generous to somebody like Martin Heidegger, right? Uh, who he quotes. Uh, as a major influence on his work uh, in the opening of 12 Rules for Life. Uh, and Martin Heidegger wasn't kind of a Nazi, or uh, wasn't an like an inspiration on the Nazis. He was a Nazi, right? You know, he joined the Nazi party. He participated uh, in trying to turn students on Hitler. Uh, he sat there and he tattled to the Gestapo uh, on many different faculty members. And I'm just not sure how he'd respond to somebody saying like, well, you know, I can't believe that you would quote Heidegger in polite society any longer. What are you doing referring to them in the opening of this book about, you know, personal responsibility and so forth? Are you trying to vindicate the Nazis? You know, it'd be, it'd be an absurd claim. Uh, and I think there are ways that we can talk about having an intelligent discussion on the virtues of Heidegger's thinking. And I think that there's a lot of ways that we can intelligently approach something like Marxism, which is a vastly more interesting, complicated uh, and ultimately, I think, redeemable political project than Heidegger's was. Uh, yeah, I mean, right. Like, I mean, uh, Peterson loves uh, Nietzsche. I mean, even though, obviously, Nietzsche's conclusions are very, very different from, from Peterson's on a lot of subjects like Christianity, you know, uh, but uh, but he's but he's still he's still a big fan. He often refers to him and generally, you know, most of the time in a positive way. Uh, and if you're going to uh, to blame uh, Marx for people in the 20th century who claim to be influenced by Marx, I don't understand. You know how uh, how you can 
you know, not do the same thing to uh, Nietzsche and the far worse people, you know, who uh, claimed his influence. Uh, and and then Heidegger, as you point out, I mean, it's not even like it's not even a matter of influence. You know, that this is like Heidegger uh, was literally a Nazi, you know, party member. Um, and and uh, and again, Peterson often quotes him. You know, you know, extremely positively. So if anything, it's kind of funny that this double standard that he claims about uh, you know Marxists and uh, and Nazis. You know that that if anything, he has it. You know, but it's in the uh, it's in the opposite direction, and it's 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 just very strange. Like especially in the Heidegger case, because like okay, yeah. like whatever you think about the. Um, you know, the messy issues about what to think about these 20th century sort of authoritarian state socialist experiments. Uh, like, certainly the idea that, like, anybody calls themselves, a, like, you know, Karl Marx, uh, as far as I know, the only head of state, you know, who existed in his lifetime, who uh, he thought highly enough of to send him a friendly telegram. Was hey, Graham, in- like yeah, yeah, who, who was obviously democratically elected. Uh, and uh, and the the one sort of radical experiment that existed at the time, you know, that that Marx um, supported and talked about as a harbinger of uh, of socialism uh, was the uh, the Paris Commune, which was which was radically democratic. So, so yeah, I, I think the uh, double standard is very strange. So let's, let's just say that's that's let's that's noted, you know, and uh, and 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 let's and let's move on. But I, I think there's there's also a lot wrong with the rest of what he's saying you know besides this sort of strange and strained uh attempt to uh to compare um you know to compare marxists to nazis i'll say my further remarks on this uh till everyone else is gone but i do feel that we should hear from your cat who clearly has very strong opinions about this (laughs) i'm like if we're going to be good democrats right the fact that she's trying to intervene or he uh you know we need to give give them a voice right they need well well, he is uh you know uh, well, we got him, you know, when my wife and I were living in Korea. So as as a uh, as a as a native of the Asian continent, you know, he he might object to the way that Peterson yeah. is uh, is uh, blurring together some very different nations and experiences there when he uh, he lists off like oh Cambodia, Vietnam uh, as as examples of uh, of places where uh, you know socialism existed and was terrible. When in fact, if you know just a little bit about history, you know the uh, killing fields in Cambodia. You know that's 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 uh, that's our side of the Cold War. You know the uh, the U.S. was openly backing the Khmer Rouge when Vietnam invaded to try to stop the killing fields, uh, and that's not a that's not some leftist conspiracy theory. I mean that's like UN votes. Yeah, there's also the 20 million people killed by colonialism, right? Often justified uh, by a combination of we need to Christianize these people or we need to bring the joys of capitalism and modernization to them, right? So uh, let's not too highly into that that that's that's it isn't it it's like <clears throat> you know and i think i want to be a little bit careful just in terms of responding to this because i don't i don't believe that it's necessarily possible to fully dissociate uh the work of marx uh from you know these events which transpired in the 20th century um i do think that the position he's talking about when he says that um you know this claim of oh i would have i could have done it better i think that's more or less exclusively a position of of sort of the western marxist left i i think um, you know, throughout much of the globe, uh, people continue to, uh, Marxists th- throughout the world, uh, continue to um, uh, support um, the actions that were taken or some of the actions that were taken by these regimes. Um, but I want to just highlight a little bit, you know, it's interesting his comment when he said that, uh, you know, if you really were, you know, some sort of benevolent person, uh, you know, benevolent Marxist, your head would have rolled. 
uh, in about 1915. I mean, if you look at at, at sort of the the uh, aggressive character, right, and the, the voluntaristic and aggressive character of Leninism and how it was forged, um, you know, in many ways it was a response to what had happened in the Paris Commune, right? And what had, what had happened in the Paris Commune, right? Well, you know, uh, after there had been this attempt to establish this sort of democratic uh, socialist project, after there had been, um, you know, a thorough effort to implement democracy, right, in that context, uh, you know, troops poured in and killed tens of thousands of people, right, right. in order to retake the city, you know, and, and for better or for worse, right, what Lenin said is, uh, you know, we're not going to lose this time, we're going to do whatever it takes, right? So now I'm not saying that that's good or that that's bad, right? But what I am saying is that, you know, uh, if you look at the, the horrific atrocities uh, committed in the name of ideologies that Peterson advocates, right? I think that that very often, um, you know, the, the the theater that these ideologies were entering and trying to penetrate was an extremely violent one, um, you know, and, and and resorting to extreme measures was the way that they sort of asserted themselves, uh, you know, on the world stage of history, right? Um, so so again, and it's just self-negating, right? Because again, you know, Noam Chomsky said, for example, that the United States, you know, statistically probably killed the most people in the 20th century, right? How can he advocate what he advocates? Right. You know, if having killed a lot of people is supposedly uh, grounds for rejecting an entire ideology. Yeah. And, and I, I would just add that uh, whereas you're certainly right, I'm you know, I don't think that criticism, I don't think that anti-Stalinism is by any remote means limited to Western Marxists. I think that even within those societies, uh, you find, you know, plenty of, you know, distant communists here with those positions. But uh, I also think that the uh, that it's it's a it's a weird caricature and it's a weird caricature that's uh, that's worth mentioning for reasons that go beyond whatever you think about the uh, issue of what's you know was you know used to be referred to as uh, actually existing socialism because uh, because uh, I think that his caricature of that sort of Western Marxist position oh if I were in that position if it were me instead of Stalin you know I wouldn't have done these terrible things. Is very similar to his his caricature of of Marxism and really of economic leftism as a whole, which is oh, which is that oh, these people are saying that they're just motivated by compassion, uh, and in in both cases, what he's taking uh, Marxists and socialists to be is to have his position, which is that uh, all of politics is really a matter of individual moral character, uh, when that's not at all you know the uh, the the classical Marxist position you know whatsoever right the uh, uh, like the you know, the classical Marxist position uh, is to talk not about individual moral character, but about social institutions uh, and uh, and their consequences and, you know, and how, you know, the economy could be reordered to avoid those consequences. And, uh, and the classical Marxist position is not uh, that the primary thing, you know, the primary means of changing society is to motivate people based on uh, compassion for others. The, uh, the classical Marxist position is that the primary way and this goes back to the oil rigs, you know, the uh, the primary way of um, changing society is to organize the majority of society on the basis of shared self-interest that uh, that the that most people are, uh, you know, that most of society belongs to the working class and their their interests are served uh, by by uh, organizing first for a better position in that society and then for a different kind of society. Uh, and, and so um, I, I would say that the same way that, you know, like Western Marxists or dissident communists tradition, you know, standardly 
didn't say, oh, the bad thing is that Stalin was in, was at the top of that political system rather than somebody more benevolent. Instead, they objected to the political system and they wanted a different one. I'd say the same way, um, you know, this, this idea that, you know, Marxism is all about, you know, um, is all about appeals to compassion, you know, just, just sort of, um, you know, just sort of misses the point, you know, that the, uh, that, uh, that the, the, the Marx, you know, the traditional Marxist solution, you know, to uh, the inequities of capitalism isn't to say that you should get people who already have power in that society to, you know, be more benevolent, you know, like if anything, that's the, uh, that's the standard conservative solution, you know, that you should have, it's like uh, Ron Paul saying that you don't need to give people health care because, you know, in the old days, the church would have just passed the collection plate. You know, the, uh, the, the Marxist solution is to say, no, you should take all the people who don't have power and get them to organize on the basis of their shared interest in something else. Yeah, and I wanted to say, just as a technical point, uh, anybody who spent any time uh, perusing the Marxist literature would be aware of this fact. Uh, in fact, I'm occasionally critical of the fact that Marxism tends to rely upon implicit normative arguments uh, rather than those that are explicated. Uh, but there were good reasons for this in the 19th century, and uh, they were well expressed, for instance, by Engels in the anti-jury, right, uh, which was this argument that uh, we want to be dialectical and historical rather than making claims or appeals to justice. Um, or sentiment, for that matter, right? Uh, and this was, in fact, the basis of Marx and Engels' critique of the utopian socialist, right? Which is that they relied on these warm, fuzzy humanist conceptions of being compassionate to our neighbor. Uh, and this isn't the right way to approach the issue precisely because it becomes ahistorical and moral uh, rather than consonant with the kind of dialectical core of their thinking. Right? Yeah. Uh, Marion, I think we've heard from everybody else on this. Yeah, I wanted to say, or rather than to discuss uh, Marx in the wrong reading, or however you want to call it, the leap Peterson takes from criticizing actually existing Marxism into saying, because these fail and because we have Stalin, then we should not have leftist movements today. I think to me that's like also, those are like, uh, uh, and he does this all the time, like, um, in many respects, right? Like, for example, also when he talks about feminism, he just like groups feminism, feminists and feminist, feminist movements into like kind of a single ideology, right? And I think it's the same he does when he says like, oh, these leftist collectivist projects, right? As if everything is just Marxism or wanting to advance like, uh, like a certain type of Marxism, right? As you pointed out, like they're also different, like, if I see people fighting the most in the left, is usually Marxists and feminists, <laughs> right? Yeah, that tells you how it's like just like not unified like movement, right? And uh, I think uh, I don't know. I think it's very dangerous because, uh, like, as we saw with the rise of Trump and the rise of populist movements in around the world, there is a lot of distrust and resentment towards like what's considered elites or educated people, right? And I say elites because like truly like every time we live in precarity as like professors and PhD students, I really question where the hell, like why do they say elites or whatever, right? So like, I, I think it's quite, uh, he's fueled to me, Peterson is fueling into that, right? And, and to me, that's why kind of um, why kind of it's still important in engaging with like him and people like him that express the same distress, right? Because of what we had with Trumpism, this whole idea, like no, 
uh, don't trust them, etc. Uh, but uh, also to say, sorry, I totally missed my point, but uh, I, yeah, the point out this, right, like uh, kind of uh, this grouping of like a different array of very antagonistic like movements to the left into one single thing and just to say, oh, because you fail in the past, you should not get another opportunity, right? Which to me sometimes, Peter's, what, but what makes Peterson such a reactionary, right? Like, oh, we should like rewrite it, like this should have never happened or... Yeah, well, it's, it's also, I mean, it's, it's, there's also something crazy about this, like, given that, you know, his his other, the other half of what he does is this, uh, is, like, self-help. Um, and, and you know, I, I, I'm just trying to imagine somebody who, who came to him, you know, like, you know, came to some talk that he gave about, you know, about, uh, you know, self-authorship and, you know, and, and, uh, and taking charge of your life or who came in for a session in his clinical psychology practice who told him that he'd tried, he'd failed at something before. So he probably, and, you know, he probably should never try again, you know, and, and I'm trying to imagine what, you know, what Peterson would say about it. I, I don't think that he, uh, I don't think that he would approve of that would be my guess. Uh, for it's us, also like it's also like you know a good question too to ask is like did we fail? I mean you know if we have a weekend right you know that's because of labor unions you know it's like uh, China eight hundred million people out of poverty. I mean yeah there are lots of bad things, but I think describing you know the left that the history of the left as failure is like a tremendously unnuanced uh, way of approaching the the question to begin with. Right? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I'd, I'd like somebody to ask him if he uh, if he thinks that uh, his his home country should uh, privatize its healthcare system. I mean, I'd I'd I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear his answer. Well, I just wanted to say uh, on Marion's point about the left being treated as a monolith uh, on the political right by the political right. Uh, this is something that I've always found really amusing, right? Uh, and it reminds me of an old Jewish joke that I learned from Richard Evans last week, right? Uh, and it was made during the Holocaust, and there was two guys. Uh, they were sitting on a bench. And one of them was reading uh, the Nazi newspaper. And his friend turned and looked to him and he's like, well, why is it you're reading that? You know, it's yeah. trash, filth, you know? And he's like, well, this is the thing. Uh, I live in a ghetto in real life, but when I read this, I'm told that I'm the head of a worldwide global conspiracy uh, and everything is being pulled or orchestrated by me in some way, shape or form, right? Uh, and that's always what I think whenever I read Don't Burn This Book by Dave Rubin um, or The Right Side of History by Ben Shapiro. Because uh, in those books, I learned that I'm part of a global elite that's controlling every aspect of culture, uh, and that we're all united, and we're never going to be going to win uh, unless a bunch of brave and hardy conservatives stop us. Uh, which is very different than the left I know, uh, where every five minutes or so we like to just choose something which is going to be an intractable distance, or sorry, difference, uh, and then we all decide that we're going to take a break from one another uh, and not band together to tackle real problems, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, before we go any further, uh, Conrad, I know it's like three in the morning uh, in Paris. Uh, good to stick around for a little while longer. I'll stick around a bit long, a bit longer. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because because I want to talk about uh, the uh, the the big moment in uh, in the uh, the arc of uh, Jordan Peterson that we uh, that we haven't talked about, uh, which is uh, this this very strange reversal actually from the last clip that we watched because in that clip. Uh, he he said that he uh, he wouldn't um, that he refused on principle uh, to debate Richard Wolf because uh, that would uh, because of the horrors of Stalinism uh, and somehow even though if anything I think um, you know 
I mean, Zizek, you know, is, is certainly not a Stalinist any more than Richard Wolff is. In fact, he was a uh, democratic dissident in Yugoslavia at one point. But, um, but <laughs> uh, uh, out of the two of them, right? I mean, Wolff is is actually much more, you know, strident about the difference between the sort of socialism he advocates and what existed in some of those countries. Uh, so it's 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 kind of funny that he did end up being willing just to. Uh, uh, swallow his principles and uh, debate um, and debate Slavoj Žižek, and in that debate, uh, he had uh, he had a bunch of uh, well, he calls them axioms for some reason. Uh, as far as I can tell, um, Peterson just likes the word axiom because it sounds logicy mathy, uh, even though what he's describing clearly are axioms. You know, an ax- you know, like an axiom is a basic unargued, you know, assumption that everything else falls from. This is, this is not what he's describing, but whatever, what he calls the uh, axioms of Marxism. And so uh, Forrest has assembled some, some clips where, uh, where, where Peterson is going through the axioms. And I'd, I'd really love the, uh, the, the panels, um, you know, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to keep it quick because there are a bunch of them, but I'd, I'd really like to, uh, to hear the panel's thoughts about this. Logic yeah. is a great term, by the way. Thank you. So I took the the ten propositions that you guys wrote, and I found them in the uh, Zizek Peterson debate, and kind of cut them into a thing that can be just debunked really fast. All right, let's do it. Hold on. Ten of the fundamental axioms of the Communist Manifesto, and so these are truths that are basically held as self-evident by the authors, and. Um, they're truths that are presented in some sense as unquestioned, and I'm going to question them and tell you why I think they're um, unreliable. So, here's proposition number one. History is to be viewed primarily as an economic class struggle. Um, the first of all is there the proposition there is that history is primarily to be viewed through an economic lens and I think that's a debatable proposition because there are many other motivations that drive human beings than economics and those have to be taken into account especially that drive people other than economic competition like economic cooperation for example All right, so uh, axiom of Marxism, uh, yeah or no? I should say that um, if the only thing you actually read uh, was the Communist Manifesto, which is apparently the only thing that he has read in a very long time, uh, I could see why you would come to that conclusion, since it does have this very striking line, you know, the history of every society hitherto has been the history of class struggle. Uh, and again, you just look at that and say, oh, this is Marx's kind of axiomatic point on this. Uh, but then you forget that this was a political pamphlet that was aimed at the masses, and it was intended to be sexy and dynamic and striking. Uh, and I should say it is a dynamic and striking uh, pamphlet, right? Uh, some of my favorite lines from Marx and Engels are in it, right? Particularly uh, the one about everything solid melting in the air under capitalist conditions, right? Uh, but I think if you look deeper into their work, uh, and I don't mean much deeper, I mean just superficially deeper, uh, even to things written around the same time period, like the German audiology, uh, you realize that they have a much more complicated vision of society than just class struggles determine everything, right? Yeah, or, or, or I mean, like you read like the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon, which came out just a few years later, which is uh, actually, if you want to, you know, if you want 
Marx's theory of history, and you don't you know you don't want to bother with secondary sources like uh, you know the G.A. Cohen book, uh, you know Karl Marx's theory of history. You know that would be a good place to start, and you know and and it, it is true. Uh, obviously that the class struggle, you know, has a very important place in, you know, Marx's view of history, but it, you know, this idea that Marx doesn't recognize there being any other factors that have anything to do with, uh, with historical change. Again, you can see how you get that. If the only thing you know about Marx's theory of history is the first paragraph of the communist manifesto, which just to underline and circle what Matt just said, um, Jordan Peterson, by the time he debated Zizek had spent years going around the world, constantly railing against the evils of uh, Marxism. Uh, and he admitted at the beginning of the Zizek debate that the, um, that he just reread the communist manifesto for the first time in 40 years. Uh, and I, I think it's safe to say that if he, you know, I mean, the communist manifesto is, is this thick. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he just reread that for the first time in 40 years, right. If he hadn't even read that in decades, I'm fairly certain that he wasn't, you know, he didn't read the 18th Brumaire, never mind, you know, Capital or Gundrisa, you know, any like any, you know, any of these things. I mean, literally, he is just going by this one pamphlet, but he's also reading it in a in a very reckless way, you know, that this this is like that, like this this paragraph where you know Marx is, is sort of having this prose poetry about uh, class struggle is is just the beginning and end of his theory of history. Yeah, I just wanted to like follow that up by saying. Um, even if you went deeper into the Communist Manifesto, which isn't very far since it's only about, you know, yay big, uh, you'd see that their vision is more complicated, right? Uh, you don't even need to go into Grundrisse uh, or Das Kapital or any of those vastly more complicated works, right? Uh, and I don't want to get too much into like what Karl Marx's vision of history here is, uh, but it's a dialectical one, right? Uh, and as Conrad pointed out, and I think you pointed out also, Ben, uh, you can find some expressions uh, of support for capitalism in the Communist Manifesto that would outdo anything you would see in Milton Friedman. Right. Uh, this argument that he puts forward along with Engels that has created wonders that the world has not yet seen. Right. Uh, that for the first time we become conscious uh, of the actual material conditions uh, of our society. Right. Um, the argument that technology has been rapidly accelerated uh, by the kind of impetus of capital. Right. Uh, but then it has its problems, which generates something like class struggle. Right. Uh, in the 19th century. So you don't even really need to go that far in order to recognize that what's going on here is a lot more subtle than just uh, capital is bad, workers good, uh, get rid of you know the, the former and everything will go peachy clean. Right? I don't know if it's in this this section or if it has to do with one of the other propositions, but he says something like Marx thought that class struggle was always between bourgeois and proletariat, which again would be an oversight because even in the Communist Manifesto, he says that there's a simplification of class antagonism, right? Which is characteristic well, and, and of yeah, I mean, even in the opening lines of the uh, of the Communist Manifesto, he talks about other forms of class struggle. But let's get a uh, uh, Forrest, Let's uh, let's let's get a few a uh, few more of these propositions in. Uh, so um, so I, I don't want to keep this uh, keep this going uh, too late. Hold on, just a second. So uh, so yeah, let's 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 do like uh, let's do like propositions, you know, two to four or something. And uh, and take it as a chunk. And so that's the next problem: is that, well, the, the this ancient problem of hierarchical structure is clearly not attributable to capitalism because it existed 
long in human history before capitalism existed, and then it predated human history itself. So the question then arises, why would you necessarily, at least implicitly, link the class struggle with capitalism, given that it's a far deeper problem? And now, it's also, you've got to understand that this is a deeper problem for people on the left, not just for people on the right. We're also actually always at odds with nature and this never seems to show up in Marx and it doesn't show up in Marxists, Marxism in general. It's as if nature doesn't exist. Okay, now the other, another problem that comes up right away is that Marx also assumes that you can think about history as a binary class struggle with clear divisions between, say, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And that's actually a problem because it's not so easy to make a firm division between who's exploiter and who's um, exploitee, let's say. All right. Uh, let's just let's just take those three. So uh, so to review, uh, Marx doesn't know about pre-capitalist class struggle. Uh, Marx doesn't know that there are intermediary classes and not just the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And uh, Marx never says anything about nature. Anybody uh, anybody want to address any of this? Let me grab the nature one. Um, so I'm not, I don't even, you know, I, I'm sure you guys will have an easy enough time dissecting uh, two and four because they're completely incorrect, right? You know, uh, the uh, the two, Marx never says that all inequalities because of capitalism. Uh, he never says that history is defined by struggle between uh, the proletariat and the bourgeois. Um, but as regards uh, the third point uh, about nature, it is interesting because in Marxist studies, you've had this, um, you know, for a long time, I think there was the, this this notion that Marx was just a kind of productivist, right? That he didn't really care too much about nature. That he that that he made arguments against Malthus, right? Um, and that those arguments uh, showed, in a way, um, when Marx suggested that there aren't these finite limit, limits in terms of the population we can support, uh, that he thought nature was simply something inexhaustible. Of course, knowledge of something like the climate crisis would have been totally unavailable to him at the time. Um, but there's a great book on this subject called uh, Kohai Saito, uh, by, by Kohai Saito, uh, and it's called Karl Marx's Eco-Socialism. And in that, what Saito, he goes, you know, really pours through the, the Marx Engels archives in German. And what he shows uh, is that when uh, Marx read the sixth or seventh, so Marx was very influenced uh, in terms of, um, you know, attacking Malthus' arguments about, you know, the finitude of, of the food supply. He was very influenced by the changes that had happened uh, with soil science, right? Because soil science had greatly enhanced, uh, you know, the, the efficiency of these crops. Um, and, you know, this led Marx, and, and we're always going to be talking about soil, right? When we try to talk about ecology in Marx's era. But this led Marx uh, sometimes to suggest that, well, perhaps the limits are kind of uh, infinite, right? But one thing that's interesting is when Marx uh, went through the, the sixth edition, I think, or seventh edition of Liebig's agricultural uh, chemistry, um, Liebig recognized that there was a limit, right, to what could be done in terms of the rejuvenation of the soil. He said, well, maybe we can't do this infinitely. And then right after that, you know, influenced by that, Marx introduced a new term uh, into his vocabulary, and that term is irreparable rift, right? So what he was recognizing, right, for, for probably the first time in his life, uh, in anticipation of something like the current ecological crisis in the early 1860s, what he was recognizing is that we, we you know, capitalism may do damage to nature that will be fundamentally irreparable, right? So I'm not saying that Marx is totally above these charges, right? But I think simplistically to say that, you know, oh, Marx has no 
conception of the finitude of nature, right, or that nature doesn't appear in his work at all, um, is too too easy a simplification. Yeah, and I mean, we can even go further because, I mean, what you're talking about are cases where Marx is anticipating, you know, later environmental concerns, but uh, even before talking about that, uh, I mean, look, I mean, nature, if we're just talking about whether it's as if nature doesn't exist or whether you say anything about nature, I mean, like, uh, you know, I mean, nature is all over the place, even in, in Hegel's theory of history, never mind Marx's, you know, that uh, the, uh, you know, sort of idea that a lot of, you know, historical progress should be understood as, as sort of increased independence from, you know, the struggle with nature. Uh, again, is is there even with 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 Hegel? Certainly, they're all over the place with uh, with with Marx. You know, with the uh, his understanding of the interplay between uh, you know basically technological progress, the uh, the um, uh, the um, you know material base you know of society and the uh, and and the uh, the structure you know that uh, that that it gives rise to you know. So uh, I he mean, also, I can yeah, please. I was going to say he also uh, Marx also co-signed on Engels' writings on the not dialectics of nature. He never uses this phrase in German, but dialectics uh, with or in nature, right? You know, and in Engels' writings on that, um, you know, you have a very, very, um, you know, dynamic uh, conception of sort of the ontology of nature. So I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, right? But it certainly shows that Marx was uh, keen to uh, uh, deal with the subject of nature. Yeah. Oh, Ed, go back to uh, the critique of the Gotham program. Another one of his objections to the Lasallians is that they talk about uh, labor being the only source uh, of uh, the source of you know, production of value. He says, well, wait, wait a second. What about nature? So uh, there's this, this, yeah, yeah, this, this, this claim that he's, um, I mean, you could, I mean, I could understand somebody saying, uh, oh, what Marx said about nature is wrong, especially if they weren't giving him credit for these, these passages where he is, you know, anticipating these later environmental concerns, but I have a much harder time seeing how anybody could, you know, uh, other than just by never reading anything by the communist manifesto uh, conclude that he doesn't say anything about nature. And it's, and it's even weirder to think, I mean, look in the, in the opening sentences of the communist manifesto, those opening sentences are all about pre-capitalist forms of class struggle. So, I mean, Peterson should have seen that. Uh, and, uh, and again, late, you know, um, maybe less so in the communist manifesto, although even in the communist manifesto, he is talking a bit, you know, about uh, the existence of intermediary, you know, uh, social strata between the working class and the capitalist class. Uh, certainly the last chapter, you know, where he's talking about different political parties, you know, that existed in, uh, in Europe at the time our political movements, what they meant by parties in that context wasn't exactly the same as what we meant. But, uh, uh, but certainly if you read that stuff like the 18th Brumaire, I mean, you know, he's, he's constantly talking about the differences between the working class and, you know, the peasantry, the working class and the petty bourgeoisie, the working class and, you know, and, and the lumpen proletariat, you know, the unemployable and criminal element. So um, it, it, this, this is just like, I mean, you know, Marx is not above, legitimate criticism, but I mean, these are, these are deeply weird criticisms. Yeah. I, I wanted to just address a different issue uh, of this argument about nature uh, that I think is germane to what a lot of right-wing critics of Marx uh, point out. Uh, Cause I think a lot of times when they say Marx's conception of nature is flawed, uh, they don't mean his conception of the natural world. Uh, they mean his conception of human nature. Right. Uh, and you see Peterson refer, for instance, to Dostoevsky a lot. Uh, and he's a favorite uh, on the political right. Uh, to invoke as a kind of critic of Marx, even though he didn't necessarily read his work. 
Uh, and the argument is, well, Dostoevsky shows you that Marx is wrong. Uh, human beings are fundamentally not altruistic. Uh, and all you need to do is read The Devils to realize that a lot of the people who were going to wind it, uh, being the Bolsheviks in Russia who claimed to be altruists, who wanted to create a golden socialist society, uh, were actually bastards who were going to destroy everything uh, and couldn't even be trusted to run a small town for a little while, uh, let alone a state successfully. Right? Uh, and I think that this really misunderstands uh, what Marx's concept of human nature is, right? Um, it is this kind of caricature that he assumes that we're all deeply altruistic uh, and we're just perverted by capitalism into becoming selfish beings. Uh, and certainly he argues that it inspires us uh, to certain kinds of alienated apodemism uh, and hyper-competitiveness. Uh, but fundamentally his view of human nature is Hegelian one, I would argue. I mean, this is very controversial, right? Um, uh, which means that he tends to agree with thinkers going all the way back to Aristotle that we're social beings first and foremost, but he does have the modernist uh, conviction that the most important goal for human life, how we can achieve the good life, if you will, uh, is by being free, uh, which doesn't mean free in the sense of free within the market. Uh, it means being self-determining beings. Uh, and the twist that he gives is, of course, by saying that, this mean, that in order to genuinely be free, um, we need to recognize that the full development of our capacity is dependent on the full development of everyone's capacities, right? Which uh, again, Peterson should know because he says that in the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, exactly. And now, whether this is true or not, and whether or not uh, this Hegelian idea is right, and whether Marx is actually Hegelian, we can debate all that stuff. But it's a lot more complicated, a lot more sophisticated than Marx just believed everyone was an altruist at heart. Then capitalism came along. We all became selfish beings. We get rid of capitalism, and we'll go back to this Rousseauian primitivism. Uh, where we all hold hands, sing kumbaya, uh, and drink lemonade from the ocean. Right? Well, and it's 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 also I mean, first of all, there's something deeply strange about oh, read Dostoevsky, so you understand that Marx is wrong. Because it's like, look, Dostoevsky is a great writer; everybody should read him. But like, should, yeah. uh, but like, I mean, I, I I'm having a hard time imagining somebody thinking that like you know I don't know. Uh, you know, pro-capitalist ideology was like falsified by, by reading Max and Gorky novels, you know, that like, it's, it's, it's a, presumably we don't normally think that novels can do that. Right. You know, like they, like, like, like part of the reason to read literature is that it invites you into how somebody else sees the world, which is a useful exercise. Uh, but that, that's just how they see the world. That doesn't mean they're right. You know, like that, that's how Dostoevsky saw Russian revolutionaries. Doesn't mean that that's how Russian revolutionaries actually were, which like almost feels like a weird thing to have to explain to people. And, uh, and, and I'd also point out that you can, uh, whereas I think, you know, like you're onto something about Marx's thoughts about human nature, you know, species being and all that, you know, and its roots in Aristotle. Uh, I'd also point out that, you know, you, you can, uh, you know, Marxist political conclusions, you know, might even detach, you know, from uh, be logically, you know, independent of that view, right? In other words, that there are certain kinds of arguments you can make for those conclusions based on that view of human nature. But, you know, there are other arguments you can make for those conclusions based on uh, extreme Dostoevsky and cynicism. Mm -hmm. about human nature if we can't count on people to be altruistic uh that's a reason not to trust people with as much power over other human beings as capitalists uh have over uh ordinary people and uh in the, the sort of workplaces that exist right now uh marion i saw you un unmute yourself did you want to throw something in no it was mostly a reiteration of what you said and uh, yeah i also take uh issue with Richardson's like uh, reading of nature i i take a more like uh Adorno and Horkheimer reading on this, like the whole idea of the second nature, right? I mean, to me, like, uh, Marx also view like this, how 
like uh, capitalism, capitalism transforms, right? Like uh, social relations and therefore like human nature. That's my reading. And then like just his oversimplification of it, it's just like, uh, I don't know, as you said, um, for someone that's gonna debate Zizek and it's been just like, you know, uh, ranting about uh, leftism and Marxism, the fact that he says like, oh yeah, I just read like, barely read this in a long time. It's just, yeah, if, if, I, if, I, if you and I or whoever will do the same with Peterson, right? Like he will be, oh, you're extremely like uncritical for being unfair to me. So. Yeah, right. Like if you said, oh, I haven't read anything on Peterson's list of great books, but, you know, I, um, uh, but, but I watched like, um, you know, I read like the transcript of one speech by round round Paul once. So I have a pretty good idea of what conservatism is all about. Uh, you know, I, I think he would be correctly contemptuous of that, but, um, well, that, that's affirmative action for conservatives for you, right? Zizek, <laughs> lifelong scholar of Marxism, you know, national post, uh, praises Peterson's self-help book and he gets the debate, right? <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Forrest, let's watch. Uh, let's watch five through ten. Uh, let's let's just go through it and then comment on the whole thing. It's also bad in this way, and that and this is a real sleight of hand that Marx pulls off. Is you have a binary class division, proletariat and bourgeoisie, and you have an implicit idea that all of the good is on the side of the proletariat and all of the evil is on the side of the bourgeoisie. And that's classic group identity thinking, you know. Is... The fact that, that you assume a priori that all the evil can be attributed to the capitalists and all the good, the, the bourgeoisie, and all the good could be attributed to the proletariat meant that you could hypothesize that a dictatorship of the proletariat could come about. And that was the the, the first stage in the communist revolution and remember this is a call for revolution and not just revolution but bloody violent revolution and the overthrow of all uh, overthrowing of all existent social structures the, the next problem is well what makes you think that you can take some system as complicated as like capitalist free market society and centralize that and put decision-making power in the hands of a few people, the mechanisms by, without specifying the mechanisms by which you're going to choose them. Like what makes you think they're going to have the wisdom or the ability to do what the capitalists were doing, unless you assume as Marx did that all of the evil was with the capitalists and all the good was with the proletariats and that nothing that capitalists did constituted valid labor, which is another thing that Marx assumed. So then the next problem is the criticism of profit. It's like, well, wh what's wrong with profit exactly? What, what's the problem with profit? Well, the idea from the Marxist perspective was that profit was theft. Okay, and then so the next the next issue, this is a weird one. So Marx and Engels also assume that this dictatorship of the proletariat, which involves absurd centralization, the overwhelming probability of corruption and impossible computation as the proletariat now try to rationally compute the manner in which an entire 
market economy could run, which cannot be done because it's far too complicated for anybody to think through. Um, the next theory is that somehow the proletariat dictatorship would become magically hyperproductive. So, and then the last error, let's say, although by no means the last, was this, and this is one of the strangest parts of the Communist Manifesto, is Marx admits, and Engels admit, repeatedly in the Communist Manifesto, that there has never been a system of production in the history of the world that was as effective at producing material commodities in excess than capitalism. Like that's, that's extensively documented in the Communist Manifesto. And so if your proposition is, look, we got to get as much material security for everyone as, we, as, as possible, as fast as we can, and capitalism already seems to be doing that at a rate that's unparalleled in human history, wouldn't the logical thing be just to let the damn system play itself out? I mean, unless you're assuming that the evil capitalists are just going to take all of the flat-screen televisions and put them in one big room and not let anyone else have one the, the logical assumption is that well you're already on a road that's supposed to produce the proper material productivity and so well that's ten reasons as far as I can tell that and so what I saw in that that, that the Communist Manifesto is is like seriously flawed in in virtually every way it could possibly be flawed I say I had visions of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, where you go in, there's all the boxes and like all the treasures of the world located. And I was thinking about that, like the giant room where all the capitalists are hoarding the massive big screen TVs that they won't let uh, give to anyone. Right? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, Ekim, uh, Onoram, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Thank you for the super chat. Uh, talks about the uh, part about not just revolution, but a bloody violent revolution. Uh, almost as if JP doesn't think the status quo is pretty damn bloody and violent as it is, which is an excellent point. I'd also point out that uh, if you actually look overall at, at Marx and Engels, um, you know, the several decades of things that they said and not just the Communist Manifesto, uh, there is a there's a range of different things that they say in different situations about what they think transition to socialism might look like. It's it's not, um, you know, it's 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 not one note. Uh, so there are there are several places starting in about uh, the early 1870s uh, where, um, you know, like there's the uh, La Liberté address to uh, the First International. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there are various places in the letters, uh, you know, interview uh, there where, um, where they say, well, uh, in advanced capitalist democracies, uh, you know, like uh, like England uh, and uh, and the United States. Uh, they thought that, you know, it might be possible to have a transition to socialism through a socialist party, uh, you know, peacefully taking power, you know, democratically, although they worried that then the capitalists would respond to that in the same way that the slaveholders had responded to the election of Abraham Lincoln, which is, of course, a very prescient worry if you look like at things like uh, the uh, like the fate of Salvador Allende uh, in, uh, in Chile. But in the Communist Manifesto, specifically... He's talking about um, countries in Europe that were ruled by uh, by monarchs, uh, like 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 those are the countries where they're having revolutions, you know, or about to have revolutions in eighteen forty eight, and uh, even in England, you know, uh, which which was the one where you know the parliamentary system, you know, was uh, you know was already a constitutional monarchy where the you know where you know the monarchy still had some power, but it was mostly parliament. 
uh, working class people didn't have the vote, you know, in 1848. Uh, and the idea that, you know, violent revolution is acceptable uh, when uh, you can't vote the, uh, you know, when, when the people who the laws are applied to can't, uh, can't, um, can't vote the rulers out of power. I mean, that, that, that bloody violent revolution is acceptable in those circumstances. I mean, that's not just something that, you know, people like Marx and Engels believed. I mean, that's something that, that, you know, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Thomas Paine believed that too famously. So, you know, I, I, I think in historical context, that's a, uh, that's a very odd complaint, but. Uh, I would say uh, even Edmund Burke actually argued for limited forms of a right to revolution, right? In support of the American revolutionaries. Uh, for exactly that reason, amongst others. Yeah, exactly. All right, so uh, there's a lot here, but let's let's just do a, a lightning round. What do uh, what do people want to uh, want to pick out out of uh, rules five to ten, out of propositions five to ten? Matt, you got to go, right? So maybe you should like you know I got to go soon too, but I can hang on maybe a little longer. So maybe you want to go? Okay, I'll, I'll I'll be really quick about this, right? Um, I think there's a lot you could say uh, about virtually every element uh, of his kind of commentary. Uh, but the one that I wanted to focus on was this, right? Um, first off, you know, he gets this claim uh, that Marx believed uh, property was theft or profit was theft, uh, entirely wrong. Uh, in fact, uh, Marx wrote a very famous critique uh, of Proudhon, who used to claim that property was theft uh, under the title The Poverty of Philosophy, right? Um, not one of his better books, but quite interesting, right? I think a lot of this misunderstanding comes from a mischaracterization uh, of Marx's theory of value, which Conrad and I have written about, I should say, so you can go take a look at our work there for Area Magazine. Uh, but long story short, you know, one of the things that Marx says, in my interpretation, and I don't want to get into all the fights about this, right, uh, is that, look, for the first time in human history, around the 18th, 19th century, uh, we could see that labor is the primary source of value. Uh, and this was actually concealed from us uh, for a long period of time, if you go back to Aristotle. Aristotle had no idea where economic value came from because he lived in a slave society. And so frankly, he just didn't appreciate the labor of those who actually did most of the work in that society, right? Uh, now we know better. Uh, and one of the kind of references um, that Marx points to is somebody like John Locke, right? Uh, he says, John Locke believes in this labor theory of entitlement. He says that if you mix your labor with the land, that makes it yours. Uh, and later economic thinkers in the vein of Adam Smith and David Ricardo, uh, who were good liberal capitalists, uh, say the same thing, right? Which is why they claim uh, that labor isn't just a source of entitlement, but a source of value, right? Because it's mixing your labor with the land that gives it worth, right? Uh, now, I tend to believe that when Marx talks about, for instance, um, socially necessary labor time and exploitation, what he's claiming is that ideologically, uh, if we actually believe this bourgeois claim that labor is the source of value and of entitlement, uh, then capitalism is actually a, situ a system uh, where, as he famously puts it, uh, the rich try to reap where they have not sown because somebody at Starbucks goes and makes your coffee for you. Um, they're the ones who committed the labor to make that coffee. Uh, and then the company is the one that actually reaps all the profit from that, right? Uh, which is not something that John Locke should be okay with, right? Putting it fundamentally, right? Uh, and I think that he's claiming that in a later society to come, we'll recognize that uh, socially necessary labor time will also go the way of the dinosaurs uh, because we'll exist as a free harmonious uh, group uh, where we'll produce uh, for the benefit of all um, rather than for exchange value, right? Uh, now, whether that's true or not, who knows, but uh, I think it's worth noting that, you know, a lot of what he says about this uh, is in many ways consonant with liberal capitalist ideology. He's just turning it on its head, I think, in a very innovative and creative way. Yeah, yeah. Uh 
Right. No, I, I think a lot of that, uh, a lot of that makes sense. I'd, I'd also, um, you know, uh, and, and in fact, I, I think that you can make a case that uh, whatever you think about the labor theory of value, that a lot of the claims of about exploitation um, uh, can, uh, can be separated from that, you know, that the uh, GA Cohen has a good paper about this. Yeah. Um, the full name I'm, I'm blanking on at the moment, but it's called something like, uh, you know, exploitation and the labor theory of value. I think that might be it, but uh, it's on, I think the Versa website. Yeah. Uh, by, the way, by the way, by the way, just a quick note, uh, Althusser also uh, and certain other Marxists tried to reconstruct um, Marx's uh, labor theory of value using just prices. Um, so basically on the economic work of Piero Rafa. So yeah. yeah, there's different examples. It's interesting. Yeah, no, that is interesting. Uh, and and I, I just say that uh, the, that the, you know, I mean, I mean, ironically enough, we haven't talked about, and we should probably wrap up. So, you know, we, we, we probably won't, uh, you know, uh, Peterson's rules, the 12 original ones or the, uh, or the 12 more, I understand uh, Conrad watched to talk about this. So he actually knows what the 12 new ones are. Uh, but I will say out of the original 12, um, I think almost all of them are fine. You know, they're just generic self-help advice that you get from all sorts of places, but whatever, it's good advice, right? You know, you, you should clean your room. Uh, you know, the only, uh, uh, the only ones that are, uh, the only ones that I'd object to, uh, well, first of all, uh, I'm not sure it's a good idea to, uh, pet random cats on the street. You know, that might be a good way to bring back feline diseases to uh, your cats at home. But, uh, otherwise the only, uh, the only two that are objectionable, uh, are, um, the, uh, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them, which is insane, uh, as, as, as child rearing advice goes, uh, and um, and uh, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world, which is just Peterson's reactionary politics, you know, leaking in, disguising themselves uh, as uh, as self help advice. Um, I mean, the, there's a there's a pretty big disconnect between not letting your children do anything that makes you dislike them and not bothering with them when they're skateboarding either. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, what if you dislike like, skateboarding? Come on. Yeah, or, or they're skateboarding in the house. They're like, you know, going down the stairs or something and really fucking things up. Like, yeah, yeah. No, by the way, the skateboarding thing, he says the skateboarding, the, 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 the guys who have to, you know, the people who have to kind of uh, uh, take risks and develop their character through this. He clarifies that they're almost always men, right? The skateboarders. So it's an interesting uh, addition. Do you mind if I just, just hop in with uh, lightning, just a few points from the, uh, from the yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was, yeah. I was just going to say real quick before you do that, sure. the, uh, that, uh, one of the rules is, uh, be precise in your speech. And I don't think that Peterson has been terribly precise when he, uh, makes this, uh, leap from capitalists sometimes do productive work true to, the idea that capitalists are appropriating the result of labor that they didn't do is false. Uh, the second thing does not remotely follow uh, from the first thing, just because capitalists, uh, you know, some capitalists in some circumstances do do productive labor of, uh, of various kinds. Uh, doesn't mean that they're, uh, that they're not uh, helping themselves uh, to, uh, to the results of, uh, of, of other people's, you know, labor, I mean, if, if, I mean, like even in like uh, plantation slavery, you know, uh, there are certain cases and certain historical examples where the owner of the plantation might actually do some per agricultural labor personally. That doesn't mean he's not benefiting from the labor of his slaves, but Conrad, please. Yeah. I just want to say quickly. Uh, so for the points, um, you know, he says, Mark says the, the, 
the proletariat is all good and the bourgeois is all bad. I mean, especially in his mature work, he certainly doesn't have this kind of uh, Manichaean uh, worldview. Actually, in Capital, I think at some point he says we only treat these people insofar uh, as they're sort of uh, actors or agents within this kind of social matrix, right? Um, so he, he tries to distance himself from those kind of moralistic pronunciations. Um, as regards the dictatorship of the proletariat, I think that uh, term uh, came from in a letter exchange Marx had with like a journalist, like Joseph Whedon or something. Anyway, just to be clear, uh, that term didn't have any of the connotations at the time they used it that are associated with like modern day totalitarianism. Uh, you know, we can we don't need to get into it now, but it just didn't. It's an acronym. Well, I, I, I mean, look, we can just really quickly say that yes, there are a handful of times when Marx and Engels use this this phrase. There's the stuff in letters. There's uh, there's uh, the, I think, Ingalls' thing on the housing question. I believe he uses it there. There are a few times, but uh, the one really concrete thing that is said about it is that the Paris Commune is the uh, historical example, and that was neither a dictatorship in the sense of a dictatorship of a single person nor a dictatorship in the sense of the dictatorship of a, uh, of a single party. Now, uh, the actual analogy he's making with Roman history, I think, I think there's a lot more that you could say about that. You know, we can do a deep dive just on, you know, what Marx plausibly meant or didn't mean by the dictatorship of the proletariat. But one thing he clearly did not mean was um, something that was less democratic uh, than yeah. what existed in the advanced capitalist democracies of his day. He's very clear about that. Uh, Matt, I know you have to go. Is there something you want to say first? No, I, I do have to go, but I just want to say solidarity to everyone. Uh, and thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And actually, um, good job, Conrad. You know, I think you were really brave to do this uh, at that hour in the morning. So uh, special props to you for that. It's a job. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. It was appreciated. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Um, yeah. I just, so I just want to just say two yeah. other things really quick. Uh, the first one is just um, Mark says, you know, how, or sorry, Peterson says, how could Marx uh, you know, have this sort of arrogance to think that people would be able to devise uh, a system uh, that could, uh, you know, manage itself. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting because Marx has different propositions. He makes different propositions regarding what, and they're kind of scattered and fragmentary regarding what, uh, you know, society will look like after capitalism as he imagines it. But that's not really why Marx is useful, right? Marx is useful because he showed, it's an eminent, eminent critique in capital, he's useful because he showed uh, uh, you know, the, the structural problems with capitalism, um, you know, that are very likely to lead to its demise at some point, you know, what comes after that, you know, Marx wasn't sitting there in the 19th century, you know, having, you know, in fact, it's a kind of humility, ironically, right? Yeah. He wasn't sitting there in the 19th century saying, well, I can just lay this all out for you, right. you know, and the, pro the, the, the projects of the 20th century, uh, represent, you know, some of them were more or less successful than others, uh, but they did affect the world in a big way. And they were an attempt to devise, a solution to this question, which Marx couldn't have known in advance. Yeah. One, one last thing I want to say as well is when he says that the, you know, if you think, you know, capitalism, if you realize capitalism is the most productive system, why not just let itself uh, play itself out? Um, you know, if capitalism has ever benefited, uh, you know, and created these, these great societies, which Peterson often uh, uh, gives it credit for, uh, you know, like something like Sweden today or something, if capitalism has ever uh, uh, created a society like that, it's because of efforts, you know, by organized labor, by the masses to intervene into the system, uh, you know, and to make sure that they get part of the, those, that elevated productivity, right? You know, it's not part of the tendential structure of capitalism, um, you know, for, or for, you know, for the bourgeois to say, oh, just take this for free, 
right? You know, that's not how it works, right? That may have become part of the governing consensus at a certain point, but even that was catalyzed through popular struggle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Sweden did get a welfare state because it just sort of emerged naturally from, um, you know, cultural homogeneity or everybody going to the same Lutheran church or something. It got it from really ferocious uh, class warfare. If you actually, if you actually start reading about the history of Sweden, I think that's all. All that's very well said. The one thing I'd add is that uh, I know we kind of said this earlier. Uh, but uh, it's worth you know it's kind of worth saying twice because it's so it's so fundamental and because Peterson emphasizes this so much. Nothing that Mark says hints at this idea that all the good is in workers and all the bad is in capitalists. Marx is not talking about individual moral character. He's talking about economic systems. The reason uh, that uh, the you know the reason. Uh, perhaps that he's hoping for the victory of workers uh, is uh, is that the economic system has such terrible results, uh, very good results in terms of uh, of the productive force, you know, increasing the productive forces of society as a whole, uh, but very bad results in terms of uh, of of you know the distribution of the results of that, and certainly in terms of democratic participation, and you know, and all sorts of other metrics that you could use. Uh, but the reason that the workers are the agents of change in Marx's thought is not that they're more morally virtuous people than the capitalists. It's that their economic interests, uh, you know, give them a reason to oppose the existing system, uh, to band together and to try to, uh, to try, try to create something better. So I, I, I really think that's worth emphasizing. Uh, Marianne, do you have any final thoughts about, uh, about any of uh, Peterson's propositions? Yeah, I guess I'll address the one that, uh, like, when he says, oh, we don't have, like, any reason to see how the proletariat is going to become magically hyper-productive, right? Like, in a post-capitalist society, it's just such a, like, naive reading. Sometimes, like, sometimes when I think Peterson is a professor, right, and it's like, just, uh, I wonder why he, like, what is it that he teaches, right? Because the whole point, as you mentioned, with, like, Marx's theory of value is that they are the ones that create value. They are the ones that create the commodities, right? And he has a whole, like, child, first chapters on Capital Volume 1 is exactly into showing you, right, by, uh, like, discussing previous, like, uh, um like uh, economic uh, economists, sorry, like Smith and Ricardo, right? It's like, how is it that they create a value, right? So it's like, there's gonna be productivity. And I see, I just stress this because I see a lot of these kind of very naive critiques today running around on like social media on memes, right? That say like, oh yeah, criticizing capitalism, like uh, on my iPhone, right? Or like drinking my Starbucks as is, as if like the, like a post-capitalist society that some people have in mind will not be productive, right? Lying on this idea, like, oh no, like, 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 like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, uh, criticizing uh, the uh, the Soviet Union, uh, you know, using a typewriter that he, uh, you know, that was that was manufactured at a state-owned factory, uh, and 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 eating food that was grown in collective farms. I mean, it's 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 such a weird, childish thing to, uh, you know, yeah. to, to try to hunt for hypocrisy about. And and I'd also add that I don't I don't necessarily um, I think you know. It would probably require a little bit more unpacking, you know, uh, and and maybe we can do this sometime, you know, to to talk about this this business about what um, what Marx thought that the uh, that the end of capitalism would mean for further development of the productive forces of society, 
but certainly a big part of what Marx thinks, if you read like the fragment on machines, is uh, is that look, there's going to be technological progress one way or the other, right? He thinks there is going to be technological progress whether you have capitalism or socialism. It's just that who gets to reap the rewards of that technological progress is going to be different depending on whether you have capitalism or socialism. That if you uh, if you have um, you know the means of production are owned by capitalists. And you have technological advances that allow uh, what's been, uh, you know, what used to take, you know, 20 people, uh, you know, uh, 40 hours a week, you know, uh, to uh, to be to be done, you know, with with half the labor, uh, then under capitalism, you know, the incentive is to um, is to keep the labor costs uh, you know, is is to use that to reduce labor costs. You know that that, that you know only uh, only ten people are going to work. You know, uh, twenty hours. You know, uh, forty hours a week, and you know, and then uh, and uh, so you've cut your labor costs in half, and so that's obviously more profitable. Whereas uh, if you know workers or society as a whole are in charge of the uh, conditions of production, then those advances in automation might play out very differently. You know, you might have everybody just be able to work. You know, half as much time. And whether you buy that argument or not, it, it's just uh, he's just not even engaging, you know, with with what Marx thought. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, uh, you know, I just want to say to, um, you know, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, even these sort of supposedly depraved examples, um, you know, of of communism. I mean, if you look at places like China or the Soviet Union, you had huge productive leaps that were made. Right. Um, so it's like, you know, whether you whether you think those are good, whether you think those are bad, um, they do suggest that people have, you know, succeeded, uh, you know, in combining something like or devising a way within something called communism, right, to greatly raise levels of productivity. Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of funny because I, I presumably Peterson would say, well, the, uh, you know, the, all of the uh, industrial, like the rapid industrialization that happened in the Soviet Union in the 30s and 40s wasn't worth the uh, the human cost. But then, but then, uh, then we're bringing in things other than how much you've increased the productive forces, which is precisely what he doesn't want to talk about when he talks about the uh, the history of capitalism. But uh, this has been a really interesting discussion. I yep. uh, really appreciate all of you. Uh, so again, uh, people want to uh, uh, want to read all of the further thoughts of the uh, the clever and charming people you've been watching for the last couple hours. This is uh, Myth and Mayhem, a leftist response to Jordan Peterson uh, from uh, Zero Books. I also have a chapter in here. There's a uh, introduction by Slavoj Žižek. Uh, and uh, and who uh, who obviously we're all we're all big fans of, uh, so um, so so do check that out. You can also order that from the uh, again uh, if you uh, if you want to support uh, Red Emma's uh, worker owned bookstore in Baltimore, you can uh, certainly order it from them, redemmas.org. Uh, so thank you, uh, Conrad. Thank you, Marion. Uh, I will, uh, Conrad, go to sleep. It's extremely late uh, where you are. Uh, really appreciate it. I work it. at eight tomorrow, so. <laughs> right. Yeah, you should really go to sleep. <laughs> okay, thanks so much, Ben. I'll see you. Thanks, thanks. Brian. All right. Uh, in, a, uh, in a few minutes, we're going to bring on uh, Vic Viana uh, to, uh, to, to talk a little uh, Pink Floyd uh, for the substitute music segment. Uh, but first, uh, very excited. Uh, we are going to uh, premiere a all new uh, segment uh, here on uh, GTA, uh, which is, which <laughs> is the, the really Biden is. update. Uh, 
This really awesome. uh, is a mind-blowing picture by, uh, yeah. by Andrew World, our graphic designer. <laughs> I'd like to eventually get some kind of like animated intro or not, like where it's like videos of him being like, I don't know, like doing the corn pop thing and being like, Oh back. yeah, no, we need we we need to get like some kind of little uh, Biden intro music with it. Uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll talk to Cole James Cash or Napoleon the Legend or one of those people uh, to uh, to get him to do some sort of like intro song with the uh, with like the uh, the sound drops of uh, of him talking about you know corn pop yeah. was a bad dude and all that. So uh, so. I love. I still like the listen fat where he's talking to the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. oh, speak, speaking of, speaking of Cole James Cash, who uh, who wrote, uh, you know, who is obviously is not playing every instrument or whatever, but he's the person who gave us the uh, the uh, intro and outro music we use. Has been a repeated guest on the uh, on the show. Uh, send him some positive thoughts. Uh, just had his. Uh, birthday and extremely unpleasant circumstances he just yeah. moved to canada and uh it's uh, funny he told us he told us on that stream when he popped up um i don't remember if it was last saturday or the saturday before but um when we were doing that stream with him he was like yeah i'm not built for this for this cold weather and then he immediately proved it by uh slipping on the ice and uh shattering his uh his 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 good leg so again yeah. send, good, send good thoughts to cole uh you know he had solidarity with with cole james cash yeah at least, at least thank god he's in he's in canada so he's not going to be hit with a big medical bill yeah yeah that's 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 really good i was supposed to go on his show i think in the next couple of weeks and i don't think that's going to happen well now. he says i mean he texted me today he said he's still he's still going to do the show even though he's gonna have to do it in bed so i don't know how that's gonna work but we'll see um so uh so forrest uh what's uh what's going on this week in Biden? Yeah, so there's a lot going on right now in uh, in Biden land. Um, I'm not sure where you want to start with all of this, but uh, he had his first military action in Syria, and I guess that's the best uh, the best place to start. And um, you know, here I have the the uh, Politico article that they released like right when it happened, and there's been a lot of information that we've learned since that doesn't really, you know, um, carry out some of this, but. You know, so there was a defensive strike, uh, what we call a defensive strike, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Which, 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 which is defensive strike somehow by the United States on the other side of the world in a sovereign country that we're not at war with, but it's still defensive. There's been there's been several uh, bombings, I guess, on the Iraqi-Syrian border and um, the Biden administration and our in our defense, I guess, our defense apparatus believes and, you know, this is not corroborated by necessarily everyone but they believe that it's an iranian backed uh militia group that's been doing it although you know the new, the new york times kind of released a slip up where they claim that actually they don't quite know that it was an iranian backed militia group but we can get into that in a minute so yeah, yeah. Um, we, we we so we destroyed several several buildings in syria and they claimed that there was only one uh one casualty but we've since learned that there were 22 casualties from Biden's first military strike. Yeah, which which is, you know, I mean, I saw Nathan Robinson point out this out on Twitter. This is absolutely true. This is uh, a much more, uh, this is a much more serious crime uh, than what uh, Trump was impeached for the first time. The uh, the phone call 
uh, you know, with the, uh, you know, the perfect phone call, uh, you know, which, which, which was certainly a sleazy quid pro quo effort, but it's, it's, it doesn't compare with murdering 22 people in yeah. violation of both U.S. and international law uh, since, of course, uh, you know, the Constitution vests war-making powers in Congress, you know, which was there's no pretense to that in this case. Uh, you're also not supposed to uh, initiate attacks against sovereign countries. If you say, oh, there's this militia that they were supporting that did this in this country, come on, as 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 Joe Biden himself would say, come on, man. And this uh, kind of brings to the Jen Psaki uh, tweet from during the Trump administration where she said, um, you know, what is the legal authority for strikes? Assad is a brutal dictator, but Syria is a sovereign country. So good, they're, good, they're very- uh, yeah, yeah. Now that, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, that, I don't hear this particular Saki bomb uh, being, uh, uh, which, which is by the way, what uh, insufferable liberals are, are calling good, uh, good Saki press conferences. Oh, wow. Yikes. I, I thought that was like something you came up with on the no, fly. No, no, no. That uh, he, but I don't hear that being said now. But the exact same point applies, uh, and and so I think both yeah both the U.S. Constitution and the uh, and the U.N. Charter, uh, and it's uh, and it's also and the reason to emphasize this right look it's not that the uh, the legalism is the main objection even I mean I think that I mean I agree with Noam Chomsky and you know, what he said about when he was talking about international law being violated by the Vietnam War that the uh, if anything. You know, Vietnam was a test of international law, not vice versa. That you know that the law would be bad if it didn't, you know, if it didn't rule this out. Not the other way around, yeah. but uh, but also and he wrote extensively also about the Bush administration further taking that that uh, international law point to the test, where they kind of stood up in front of the United Nations and, and said, you know, we we are the world power, pretty much. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and I think the other reason it's worth emphasizing uh, the legal point uh, is because uh, elsewhere in uh, in this week in Biden, uh, there has been this just farcical thing where uh, they so the Democrat, you know, Biden ran on a fifteen dollar minimum wage. Uh, all the Democrats, you know, did that. Uh, this they they made a big big deal about this. Uh, it was, uh, you know, could be in the the COVID, um, you know, relief package. Yep. Thousand uh, dollar check, uh, COVID relief package. Yeah, 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 yeah. The two thousand, yeah, whatever. Uh, oh, and I ha- and we have some sound for that. Um, after after we get through the serious stuff too. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but the uh, but this this um, yeah, like. In the Senate version, well, they're going to have to do it through reconciliation because you didn't have the 60 votes, you know, to defeat the filibuster. Uh, I wrote an article for Jack a couple of weeks ago about abolishing the filibuster. You know, people want to check that out if they want to get the, the deep dive into that. But, um, uh, you know, the reconciliation workaround isn't isn't great because uh, it, uh, you know, because it only works with when you can show significant budgetary effects and you do have you get, you get one, right? You get one. Um, cause I was watching, I was, I was helping edit, uh, clips that Katie did with, uh, Matt Brunig and he was kind of going through it and he was talking about how, um, <laughs> he was, yeah. he was talking about how you kind of get one big, uh, budget reconciliation, um, attempt, I guess a year or per congressional session. Yeah. Which is a- it's a weird, that's a weird rule. Like, I don't. And, and, and there are other big, like, problems there. So, like, like in theory, you should be able to do the budget, recon- you know, you should be able to do the $15 minimum wage through um, uh, budget reconciliation because uh, the standard is that it has to have significant budgetary effects, 
which it does, because if you pay people a lot more, one, uh, their taxes increase, uh, and two, uh, people lose eligibility for some means-tested social programs. And of course, this is a problem with um, leaning too far on this workaround of the of the work of the reconciliation, because of course uh, you only get those significant budgetary consequences because of those two things. But of course, what we would want, especially during an unprecedented crisis, uh, is for people to keep uh, their eligibility for all these programs to just to just raise the yeah. uh, the, the income floor. But once you do that, you risk losing the significant budgetary. Uh, consequences uh which yeah it's kind of the wily e. coyote uh shit where it's like you know like building these crazy like like parliamentary contraptions um to try to get anything passed no totally uh but uh in this particular case uh there was this uh particularly crazy thing uh that uh the the senate part you know the senate parliamentarian uh said that uh they couldn't um that they actually couldn't do it uh, through uh, through reconciliation. I should say, by the way, uh, that there is a uh, there's a really good. Um, I really like the uh, the framing here. I think this is exactly the way, you know, rhetorically to uh, to to present this argument. Uh, there's a really good tweet from uh, from Bernie Sanders a couple hours ago uh, about this. He says. Uh, uh, but more importantly, uh, I regard it as absurd that the parliamentarian, a Senate staffer elected by no one, yeah. can prevent a wage increase for 32 million workers. So, you know, nice system we've got here. But and it's, also, same, and it's been the same Senate parliamentarian, I think, since 2002 or something, right? Or 2000. It, it's been like, no, 2012, I think. It, it's been, you know, it's been like a, almost a almost a decade of having the same person who who decides these uh, these things. And, you know, the Republicans kind of know how to push around it because at one point during the Bush administration, they fired the Senate parliamentarian because they didn't agree with. Um, yeah. What and, and look, the uh, the vice president could overrule the parliamentarian anyway. Uh, the, you know, the vice president, the head of the Senate. But um, but they so, you know, Kamala Harris, uh, look at you. But like also, again, just to connect the dots with Syria, the particularly absurd thing here is that. Uh, they're trying to uh, uh, they're trying to have it both ways, right? So on the one hand, uh, they're they're saying, uh, "Oh, I'm sorry." Like basically, they're using the "Sorry, my mom said I couldn't" uh, for the fifteen dollar minimum wage. Uh, yeah. You know, the rules are the rules are the rules. You know, we can't defy the parliamentarian, the Senate staffers. You know, uh, position within the structure of the rules is inviolable. But on, on the other Look, hand. Parliamentary right right uh right in their name you know they're 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 omnipotent <laughs> yeah so so they can't defy the parliamentarian but they are willing to defy the war powers clause and uh, the UN charter to uh, uh, kill 22 people in Syria interestingly also um I guess Vox I didn't get a chance to read through all of it but I guess Vox broke down why the war powers act in this case is actually on extremely shaky ground but um which is which is interesting because they're not usually the ones who push on that kind of thing i guess yeah you know? uh, we, we've, we've just been joined by our friend uh vic viana uh but uh and we are going to talk about music with him in uh in just a minute but uh first there's a clip we're going to watch oh which uh which, which clip do you want to uh, pull the um oh, uh, the, the one that i did yeah okay hold on 
Yeah. So this is this is kind of this is kind of crazy. Um, I don't know. It 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 kind of shows. Hold on, I gotta pull it up. Um, it kind of it kind of shows how uh, there's never any consequences. There's never any 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 consequences for any of these um, sociopathic foreign policy establishment ghouls. And it uh, you know, it, it ends up being like a revolving door for people who both both through the military industrial complex, but also just you know administration to administration. Like you know, we we never we never really want a know, shocking we, admission by the never, U.S. We, we never, you know, ask for um, these people you know, to have any consequences for their failures. We never really question, uh, you know, do they even know what they're doing besides in the moment? Like they always, they always fall upwards. General running the war against ISIS, how few U.S. trained Syrian rebels are left. It's a small number and, uh, um, uh, the ones that are in the fight is, uh, is, is we're talking four, four or five. And I agree with the chairman, sir, on the issue of uh, there, there haven't been any dramatic gains on either side. Dramatic. Yeah, that's different from, quote, tactically stalemated. Please, General. We're confident in, uh, in the target that we went after. We know what we hit. Uh, and, uh, and we're confident that that target was being used by the same uh, Shia militia that uh, that conducted the, the strikes. And so you'll get more information in terms of the effects of the strike this time as time uh, goes by. But I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I gave you uh, that viewpoint for me, that level of confidence that there is connectivity. Yeah. Uh so obviously, you know the uh, you know U.S. efforts in in Syria were 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 disaster. I mean, I don't know how many could claim with a straight face that anybody is any American is somehow benefiting or being made safer or anything by by any of this garbage. Uh, yeah. So even if we had found more than like whatever, whatever, however many were left, like six uh, moderate rebels to uh, to train in uh, in Syria. I think there were. Uh, there was, there was four at one point, and we had started with 60, I believe. Um, awesome. you know, which... <laughs> I, I, I kind of now I kind of want to see the reality show version of that with the uh, the Stixie moderate rebels being whittled down to four. You know, it's like, well, <laughs> you know, uh, Abdullah has uh, has has advocated uh, Sharia law again, so he's not going to get a rose in the next round uh, <laughs> to, to find the four sufficiently moderate rebels in uh, in Syria. But if the uh, if those four rebels uh, had attacked, um, you know, those four rebels, uh, you know, like had uh, had planted a bomb somewhere in Syria that had, had killed people, which is the point, right? I mean, that's what you train, you know, rebels, moderate or otherwise to do. Uh, I mean, if you were going to use Biden's rationale for uh, for this this bombing now, uh, then like what Syria could uh, could set off bombs in the United States and call it defensive because militias trained uh you know by the united states and kill people there look jack those those rules don't apply to us <laughs> yeah um exactly. so yeah i i just you know it, it's i guess it's worth highlighting that you know i mean uh lloyd austin was was the general in charge of the syrian efforts but obviously the failure wasn't all his fault he was just the person they kind of brought up to take the to take the heat um in front of in front of congress but you know still like they had him, you know, take that beating over and over and over again in front of, I get, you know what I mean? Like, like questioned in 2014, 2015 by senators and congressmen and 
congresswomen and like it's it's just you know this these humiliating like it's almost like a hazing ritual you know what i mean like it's not a a failure which means that you know in the next administration you're not going to get um any kind of role or you're not even gonna you know move upwards like considering the fact that you know he retired as a as a general after that but then his um you know defense secretary is is a way bigger step up than 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 just being a general yeah for sure so all right we we're gonna um we're gonna switch gears but uh president biden if you're watching this which i assume you are uh the uh the minimum wage stuff the serious stuff it's 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 not good uh if uh if you want us to be kinder uh when we do this segment next week you know do better <laughs> but uh Vic Viana, uh, we are uh, always. Uh, hey, how? Great to be so, here. Um, thanks for having me again. Yeah, no, our pleasure. Uh, so um, you know, so Vic is uh, is always uh, one of our uh, you know one of our favorite people. Uh, like, uh, have uh, people uh, haven't seen his uh, the work that he did for uh, for TMBS, the illicit histories? Should really check those out. Some of those are just amazing. Uh, but. Uh, we uh since uh since we we've done this thing you know kind of since the uh, very beginning of the show last summer uh where at the uh you know at the end of the episode you know we're kind of done talking about politics so for the most part might take a few super chat questions at the end uh and you know have uh you know pour a glass of whiskey and I talk to uh, david griscom uh, about music uh and um you know, Griscom uh, is uh, is on vacation. I think for another week or so after this one, but uh, uh, which means I'm uh, very happy to have uh, have Vic here since uh, since long before we talked about having doing this substitute segment while Griscom was gone. I always I always really enjoyed uh, you know his uh, his tweets about music. So uh, what are we talking about this week? Yeah, so I was thinking this week we could do Pink Floyd. I mean, for no other reason than I was just listening to, you know, have a cigar or something the other day and was like, oh, we should do that for the next segment. <laughs> nice. Uh, That's, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, that's from uh, it's from a pretty late album, right? That's wish You Were one. Here. Yeah, Wish You Were Here, right, with the uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamonds, that one. Yeah, bookending yeah. it. And then it's that, I think it's that one, and then the title track, and then um, Welcome to the Machine. I'm not actually, I, I have no idea what the track listing is now that I'm thinking about it. But um, yeah, that that's a good one. That's a good later one. You know, I don't really know this Barrett stuff that well, all the early stuff. Um, I'm mostly, you know, I mean, I know the key tracks from those, and we'll listen to them every once in a while. But um, yeah, I've been like revisiting Pink Floyd a lot over uh, just quarantine and all this shit. Um, so... Can we curse on the stream? Yeah, go for it. Okay, cool. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Are you into Floyd? What's that? Are you into you Floyd? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, very much so. I, I was just uh, more, um, uh, yeah. So we're we're late enough in the uh, you know we're the late enough in the episode. What are the chances that anybody who's uh, who's, you know, a uh, current or future employer is going to be listening at this point. So I'll say that, like, as you're talking about the, uh, uh, you know, Have a Cigar and that album, you know, that album that's on, you know, Wish You Were Here, I was thinking about um, uh, the uh, several years ago with with other people who are not, um, 
uh, you know, one of whom is a uh, is somebody who the viewers know, but I won't name. Uh, you know, I was uh, getting ready to, um, you know, leave the uh, the city that I've been living in for a long time, and uh, I was I was over at a uh, at a friend's house, and uh, and we you know we we took mushrooms and you know just sat there for the uh, the afternoon, and uh, and there was a point he had the Apple TV that was set up, so the uh, the his photo stream from Facebook was showing was going across the TV, and uh, and I had uh, so listening to. Uh, uh, shine on you crazy diamonds while nice. like everybody we knew were like you know were going past us you know it's like that that's it's uh cheesy as hell <laughs> that definitely impressed itself on my memory no totally that that kind of thing always makes a really strong impression i think i remember yeah the one time i did college like at some point during it someone was like got to put on it's like dark side of the moon or something so that was like you know <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I actually, I always forget that this is like also a whiskey thing, so I always forget to bring a drink over here with me. But um, um, yeah, I mean, um, that one's yeah, that one's yeah. good. Dark Side of the Moon, like I think front to, that one front to back, I think still is really great. Um, still like totally, you know, they they also like, um, you, they they are underrated as a band that like can groove and jam, you know, and mm -hmm. like really like rhythmically, it's it hits, you know, um, their stuff. Like it's not all. Some of it is super space. Even when it gets super spacey, it still has that kind of bluesy undertone mm -hmm. going on with like David Gilmore stuff. Um, his solo stuff is actually pretty good too. I was checking out a record that he, a self-titled record he did like the end of the seventies, kind of when Roger Waters like was doing more of the songwriting during the wall. I think it came out like right before the wall. And it was like, oh, these are all the things that he probably wanted to recommend for that album, but couldn't, you know? Uh, but um yeah so those are good i mean yeah they i think they're just they're underrated as like a bluesy kind of band you know because that, yeah, that no, really like, helps the spacier people, stuff work yeah people appreciate the uh the yeah. psychedelic lyrics and uh and and the sort of existential musing you know but but the uh the, the underlying uh yeah the underlying musicality maybe gets a little bit of a short shrift yeah yeah because even like um i don't know not to like there's other bands of that era that i think like didn't really have that and their stuff hasn't aged as well like i don't know like yes or emerson lake and palmer like that that stuff is like pure i mean no disrespect if there are big fans and they each of those bands has their jams but i don't know i just think that the, like pink Floyd was just musically consistent and kind of in a way where it's like oh you could see them playing this like in a big arena to a bunch of really drugged out people or like in a bar and you know to a bunch of drunk people like i think um yeah some of the other bands of that era like got a lot of uh I don't know. They, they were missing. I think that. I think that's what has kind of made them their stuff. Uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Kind of pers uh, just kind of remain relevant. You know. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, so uh, so yeah. You said you you didn't you know know the Sid Barrett stuff as much, but you know you're a big fan of the mm -hmm. uh, the, the you know when uh, you know the Roger Waters uh, you know era. Uh, yeah, which which is certainly uh, I, I mean I'm I'm pretty much the same way I think I think that the like um, you know I think Dark Side of the Moon you know was was uh, you know was was big for me uh, for um, I mean whatever I mean obviously I still love that album but, you know for, yeah, for for a long time um, and often you know because of um, you know often because of those like sort of you know, existential, you know, musings and, uh, you know, in, in the lyrics, you know, like I, I have, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, 
I have to admit, like this is this is probably even more cheesy than the uh, than the first thing, but like that, uh, um, you know that, uh, yeah, like that track, uh, time, you know, from yeah, of, of Dark Side of the Moon. Like I, I remember, totally. like I, I remember, like the week the week leading up to when I turned thirty, like just listening to that constantly. <laughs> you know, like, that's like, nice, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. Um... Yeah, I think yeah. When you're like 15 too, and you first hear that, it's like the deepest thing ever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but that's another one too, where it's it has those lyrics, but like the the underlying kind of drums and you know guitar lines that's going underneath it is like actually pretty groovy, and you know, it's like a blues song, you know, uh, uh, at its core, which is fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I mean, I think the other album that gets overlooked a lot is Animals, but that one actually is yeah. I mean, the, you know what it is, is all the really great tracks on it are like literally 17 minutes long. So it's like hard to like recommend that to someone or to like ever hear that on radio. But like that album is, is banger too. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Cause, and, and this goes back to your first point about the underlying, you know, bluesiness and all right. that. Is, uh, they, they do these, um, you know, yeah, I mean, what you might like. Uh, the sort of go-to thing that you think of when you think of Pink Floyd might be like, you know, I don't know, another brick in the wall part two or something, which is, right. you know, fucking amazing. Don't get me, you know, but like, yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's also very like digestible. Whereas they'd also do these things where it's like, no, you're just going to listen to 10 minutes of moody music before we actually right. get to the singing. <laughs> right. I mean, that that's one too, where like they start to get like real, like kind of anti-capitalist in the lyrics. So that's a lot of fun too. That was like one of those as a teenager being like, Oh, interesting you know yeah <laughs> with like I mean, some water's, different... yeah water yeah. seems to have pretty good politics as far as i can absolutely tell. Yeah. yeah totally i mean you know he's super you know pro-palestine you know he's kind of has like all the good opinions for the he was very big on the julian assange case so you know i mean unless you're a certain type of liberal i think his politics are pretty good <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. yeah i mean the wall i think in that regard too like holds up well like politically and kind of what's going on because it's like you listen to it now and it's like oh this is like just it's about like a rock star but it totally is just about like a despot politician too i, I mean the movie you know it, it talks about yeah, the movie really plays that up but yeah that's, yeah it's yeah about the, um yeah i mean obviously it's about this like kind of uh very like scary intimate view of like one person's you know uh psychology right. and how you know, schools and, you know, and his mother and, you know, and all, right. all the things that can conspire to fuck someone up, you know, uh, did it. Uh, but then there is also this political upshot at the end, you know, that it's like, oh, this is how fascism happens. Right. <laughs> uh, and I should say, it's also the only, um, like, I think that there are not a lot of, like, rock movies that way that, like, really hold up, right? Like, like, like I think yeah. I think most movies like that are sort of like, okay, maybe if you're really into that band or it's like a sort of interested historical curiosity that like, you yeah, know, like, you know, totally. I, no, I, it still loads up. Yeah. Like when you watch like Tommy, the movie, yeah, yeah. that's very like, Oh, I'm just watching this cause it's fun and it's the who and it's of its time. But yeah, the wall, like you can actually sit and appreciate and watch it. It still is, you know, everything yeah, kind yeah. of still holds, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, and whatever, I mean like there's, there's obviously great stuff on the, the album, you know? Tommy. Yeah. yeah. Like, 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 <laughs> of course i'm not about singing along to pinball wizard loudly and out of tune you know but uh 
but the uh, but yeah, just just as a movie, it's 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 just not you know that that interesting you know. Whereas like uh, you know the wall, uh, I mean the wall like you know holds up really well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's funny too. Like they they have that angle, you know. And I know this is the music side uh, and not, but you know, it's what we talk about. So, yeah. <laughs> um, it's gonna creep in here. But uh, I remember reading like a biography about them when I was in high school. I think it was called like Saucer Full of Secrets or something like that. And they had a section in it where they talk about being like an up and coming band. And they mention how like since most of them grew up like pretty well off, you know. Uh, I think one of them was working class. Um, uh, I think the keyboardist, but you know, a lot of their contemporary bands that they were friends with, like they were saying they, their friends like couldn't experiment as much because they were like concerned about getting gigs and like, you know, they kind of stuck to like blues bar rock music. Cause that's, you know, every, the gigs that everyone needed to get. And they at the, you know, had felt like, Oh wow. Like we have the flexibility to like really play around. Cause we don't really care about, you know, we're not living gig to gig like our friends are. So like, it was interesting kind of reading that as, as a, you know, young uh, Padawan and, um, you know, kind of in taking like, oh, okay, that, that does matter. Like, you know, like, oh, having money, like makes you more able to like, you know, experiment creatively and stuff and not having to worry about those things is pretty nice. You know, it's, it's just, it's funny how like, and that was like an explicit like chunk of, of a chapter or something. Um, and yeah, so I just, I was thinking about that, like just in terms of like, their music and their view and kind of what they brought into it later like and they kind of come back around right and then that's uh, i mean with more with waters right but then kind of talking about all that stuff and you know their own kind of political position uh, they you they kind of i feel like are making a conscious effort later right so you'd be like okay we've kind of ridden the fucking capitalism money train right and like clearly they hate it because that's what have a cigar is about and then they kind of with the rest of their stuff it's like yeah this is all bullshit and fascist yeah, yeah. <laughs> like rock yeah, stars yeah, are fascist that's yeah, a track on uh on uh dark side of the moon yeah yeah totally i mean that's when they start like feeling that that's them being like oh it's weird to like have this much like we can buy jets and shit like what's that about <laughs> you know like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which kind of reminds me of that uh how hell when was that there was like uh anyway uh sometime in the year of early fall i think when uh yarn brook from the uh ayn rand institute came on the show to to argue with me and he was like uh and i remember one of his examples was like why why can't somebody have a private plane you know why do you want to stand in the way of their dreams it's like well you know maybe we could <laughs> uh, you know maybe if right. if if you're if you're hoarding that much wealth stops other people from achieving their dreams you know maybe there's some some push and pull there right but, uh, yeah um right well not even to mention the carbon footprint issue of private planes yeah yeah exactly. hey forest hey it was episode four episode <laughs> four okay yeah. nice nice yeah, the pull up the uh ayn rand was wrong about everything uh <laughs> yeah nice that was time. the title of the episode ayn rand was wrong about everything um which um yeah, no, that was that was a uh, that was that was a very good uh, that was a very good early uh, uh, early episode. Uh, you know, liked uh, you know liked that a lot. You know, actually, I wonder what I wonder what uh, Yarn Brooks uh, uh, or you know or Rand or Nathaniel Brandon or any of the people on that call. You know, like what they would think of the um, of uh, of the wall. You know, if they listened to it, you know, it's like the, uh, it's like well, why this is a very successful person who's clearly asserted his will onto the world. Why why is it all said? <laughs> right, right. Well, I'm sure they would like 
well, the audience or something, right? In that universe of like, well, they they shouldn't have bought his records if they didn't want him to become a. <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh, maybe he would have gone a completely different direction if he had discovered Pink Floyd when he was when he was younger. Right. <laughs> There's something super fucking like on top of already being just like disgusting people like. Um, people like people like that that work for like the Ayn Rand Institute, like making a career out, like making making an opportunistic career out of that is uh, specifically, I think, totally pretty fun. Pretty yeah, fun. like if you're just a random guy who has opin these opinions and like you like some of what libertarians say about like, like you know weed and you know not being yeah. homophobic, you know that that's fine. But if you're like, oh, I'm gonna go work for the Ayn Rand Institute, we well, ran it at one point, like. He was like the president or something. No, so I, mean, I mean, whatever. I mean, he's clearly a true believer, you know. Since uh, which, which actually, again, you know, not unlike the um, uh, the stuff in you know the wall. You know, I mean, I guess you can sort of see the uh, the roots of that because he he was ranting at one point about how he knows what socialism is like because he grew up in a kibbutz and they couldn't have a TV or something. You know, which is uh, uh, a. Uh, I mean, I know what. I know what socialism is is like too. I didn't. I didn't have cable growing up, so right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, my mom made me watch PBS, so I know what <laughs> you know exactly what Stalin was uh, doing. <laughs> yeah, and the TV example is interesting too because that came up in um, uh, the Jordan Peterson thing we were watching earlier. He was talking about how Marxists believe that there's a cabal of capitalists who are hoarding all the flat screen TVs in a big warehouse somewhere. Uh, I remember, I remember everyone commenting on that part of his answer when that when the debate dropped. That's why I kept that in there because I, I let him go on a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I remember it being like flat screen TVs. Like what the fuck? Like that's your example for. <laughs> well, and it's also weird that they're all they all still use that phrase because it's like I, I like right right. When was the last time I had a curved screen on a TV? You're gonna you're gonna let you're gonna let, the, you're, you're gonna let the, the the they're gonna they're gonna hoard the flat screen TVs. <laughs> that's a pretty good impression. <laughs> Uh, I, yeah. I had to watch every single uh, TMBS episode where, where Michael did his, his Jordan Peterson impression. Right, like, right. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, actually, yeah, as a uh, if you if you watch the um, uh, the very first time I was ever on YouTube in uh, 2018 was the uh, uh, talk I gave at the um, at the Jordan Peterson conference in uh, in Idaho since. Uh, since Peterson, uh, well, Peterson had been scheduled to go on Doug Lane's podcast, Zero Squared. And then, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe it was him. Maybe it was somebody who worked for him. But but Team Peterson canceled the appearance. Like, they they realized, you know, that they'd be walking into enemy territory. And so, so they canceled the appearance. And then, like, a week later, Peterson was on Joe Rogan. And Rogan asked him, why do you never debate one of these uh, equality of outcome Marxists you're always talking about? He said, "Well, they don't want to debate me," and uh, Doug got so pissed about that that you know he he reached out to this group and uh, uh, or I don't know somehow or another he made contact with this group in Idaho, and between them they uh, they organized um, this. Uh, so Dave Jonathan, I think, is the name of the person in Idaho. Uh, they um, uh, talked to you several times. My apologies if I'm getting your name wrong, Dave. Uh, but uh, they they organized this conference. Uh, as Jordan Peterson a conference in lieu of a debate. Uh, and um, and so I gave a talk at that conference uh, and 
and you can hear like there's a point where uh you can hear michael brooks in the audience uh uh sort of hecklingly interjecting something in his peterson impression <laughs> his, his best his best one was um jordan peterson like selling out and he was like ka-ching ka-ching <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting all this money. <laughs> uh, Can we watch the the cider of doom? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's let's. let's yeah, up. yeah. I, I was thinking of that one. Okay, let's yeah. watch cider of doom and then let's let's wrap up. Okay. Well, um, I have a negative story. Okay. Okay. One of the things that both Michaela and I noticed was that when we restricted our diet and then ate something we weren't supposed to, the reaction to eating what we weren't supposed to was absolutely catastrophic. What did you so, do? What did you switch to? Or what did you eat rather? Um, well, the worst response, I think we're allergic to, or allergic, whatever the hell this is, having an, uh, an inflammatory response to something called sulfites. And we had some apple cider that had sulfites in it. And that was really not good. Like I was done for a month. That was the first time I talked to Sam Harris. You were done for a month? Oh, yeah. It took me out for a month. It was awful. Really? Yeah, yeah. So I would say, so look. What, and what, so this is right before this whole truth conversation with Sam Harris that got during, stuck in the mud. During. During. So I, think you were, the, I think the day I told uh, before we finish this up, I do want to point out that an awesome part of this clip that I didn't even realize till I just watched it is that part of his uh, apocalyptic story about how he's fucked up by the cider uh, is him uh, is is him trying to justify uh, why he did so badly in that debate with Harris. I like I like when he says uh, he, he's like he's like the day the day I first talked to Sam Harris was the was the was the worst day of my life. And then he has to like clarify, and he's like, "Oh, not not because I wanted, not because I had to talk to him, but no, it's like I can imagine how that could be the worst day of your life." Like, yeah, well, sure. I mean, talking to Sam Harris should be the worst day of anybody's life, but it's also um, also if you listen to that, I mean, I have to say, like, I've I've never like been uh, more sympathetic to uh, Sam Harris than listening to him uh, talking to Jordan Peterson, you know, for that like hour and a half or however long that that first uh, conversation was because they're arguing about truth and whether something, you know, being like having pragmatic utility means that it's true or like it can be true even if it doesn't. And like Harris believes all kinds of vile bullshit, but like in that conversation, he sounds like a long suffering, like underpaid adjunct philosophy professor trying <laughs> to explain something super simple to the world's most confused undergraduate. <laughs> well, it was the have cider ever, after all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was the cider. It wasn't him. It was the cider. Exactly. Have, have you ever heard the? There's like a podcast that Joe Rogan was recording with like a really, really drunk Hannibal Burris, and he comes in and he starts heckling. Uh, he starts heckling <laughs> for an hour. <laughs> I have not, but that's hilarious. I've actually seen Burris do stand up in person. Uh, so I, I, yeah. I think I think I have a pretty good idea of what that might be like but anyway i'm sorry let's finish up the clip talk to sam was like the worst day of my life not because of talking to sam but it was just physical oh jesus i was so dead but so, I, I didn't want to not do it apple cider like what, what was it doing? In it. what was it doing to you oh it it, it produced an overwhelming sense of impending doom 
and I seriously been overwhelming. Like there's no way I could have lived like that if that would have lasted for, see, Michaela knew by that point that it would probably only last a month. And I was like a month yeah, from a month. fucking cider. Oh, I didn't sleep that, that month. I didn't sleep for 25 days. I didn't sleep what? at all. I didn't sleep at all for 25 days. How is that possible? That, that, that I'll tell, tell you, you how it's possible. You lay in bed, uh, frozen in something approximating terror for eight hours, and then you get up. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Not and good. this is from so, fucking cider. From cider. That's what we thought, yeah. I mean, look, again, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> awesome. Uh, that's amazing. I love the way this one was cut. <laughs> yeah. I, I, gotta, I gotta find out who did it really quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I can shout them out. Was Criti Critical Thoughts on YouTube. That's the name of the channel. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it. you wonder too, like, like serious question, what's going on in that clip? Like, Cause, cause what I could think of is either, I mean, look, he didn't, there's no way in hell, like cider didn't do what he's describing, right? right. Like that didn't happen. <laughs> so either he's just making it up. Like, like he wants like some crazy lie to explain like that conversation with, with, with Harris, it just kind of gets out of control and he realizes yeah. he's exaggerated too much and he can't walk it back or something other than cider was doing all that because that, that well there's there's multiple things going on because his daughter was launching her uh didn't go to school for it but somehow is a nutrition expert career so out of that carnivore diet thing and, and the allergy stories his daughter launched her like youtube uh youtube whatever um nutritionist thing where she charges people like $70 a session or something to, to teach them about nutrition. So that's that's one thing going on. The other thing probably is the, the Sam Harris debate thing where he's kind of justifying it. And, you know, at the same time, I mean, you know, people really do have these problems where they, they can't diagnose it for a really long time and they just kind of assume it's something. So I've had family members going through something like that. Yeah. No, I mean, it could be something weird that he just doesn't know what it is and he's – you know, because he's Jordan Peterson, he makes weird connections. Uh, <laughs> you jump to the cider. You know, it's like it also sounds like a benzo withdrawal thing. It does. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say because that sounds a lot more like drug withdrawal than uh, apple yeah. cider. It, it can't be. It can't be the pills. It's got to be the cider. <laughs> I also love how in that clip he's very careful to like qualify towards the end. Like I, I have no idea. He literally says, "I have no idea what I'm talking about." Yeah. Right, because he realized it, like, because that's, okay, so, like, that's the most charitable assumption that, like, something else, withdrawal, or something else was going on, and he just sincerely believed it was the spider, because he's, like, making one of these, like, connections that people make, like, people, like, with autistic children who think that, like, uh, you know, power lines made them autistic or whatever, you know, that, uh, like, he's, he's making some you know, insane connection on that level, or he doesn't want to admit that it's withdrawal. Uh, so he goes to cider or he's just making it up for some other reason. I mean, I think it's probably, you know, a little bit of all of them. Um, an, an interesting thing about that video that we watched earlier uh, where he's returning and he, and he admits the benzyl withdrawal thing is he says, and I mean, I guess this is, this is a hallmark of, you know, a lot of people that go through addictions that are like in professional careers where they should know better. But 
he's like, oh, like I never thought that it, it would be this addictive. Like, but he's like a, a clinical psychologist, psychologist. Right. Like, like, like any normal, like any regular person that, that gets like a really bad addiction to anti-anxiety medications and then goes, listen, the doctor prescribed it. I didn't know it was going to be this addictive. I'd be like, yeah, like that, that can creep up on you. Like prescription pills can keep creep up on you as a problem. But for somebody who spent his entire career supposedly studying the human brain and like what all of these, like what chemicals do and like in an attempt to try to like get people out of addictions, like really, like you want to admit that, that you don't, that you know what I mean? Like that you don't know that it could be that addictive. Like it's one of the most addictive classes of drugs that exists anywhere. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, that, that is a really weird thing just in terms of professional competence, like, you know, that, that he'd say yeah. he doesn't know that it'd be uh, that addictive. Uh, and I, yeah, and I mean, like, this also does bring up a whole other thing with Peterson, because, look, I'm sure, because people will point this out sometimes, like, it's not that I doubt that he has helped people, you know, with problems like that. I'm, I'm certain that he has, um, all, you know, but, okay, one, uh, you know, he's using whatever goodwill he's accumulated that way to uh, to spread a lot of, you know, much uh, of, of really damaging, you know, ideas. Uh, and two, look, there are some people who are at a place in their lives where what they need is this sort of pseudo father figure to yell at them about cleaning their room and not making excuses. And, you know, I'm sure he provides that. Uh, but there are lots of other people who uh, it, it might be the worst possible thing for them to encounter somebody who's just telling him, them that like, Oh, their drug problem is just a matter of bad moral character. And it's yeah. all fault. And, you know, like, like that, that might actually like, you know, like, especially people who really just need some like, you know, medical and financial intervention, you know, to, uh, to help stabilize them and get them on their feet, uh, that like, that could actually be disastrous for them. And he seems to have real contempt in his voice when he talks about, you know, whether it's the patients that he used to have that were struggling through addictions and homelessness, mm. like he seems to, and, and it comes up again in like another one of the clips, like in a bunch of the clips that, that we watched and like that I watched putting this together, like he talks about these patients with like real contempt in his voice. And like struggling people with real contempt in his voice, you know what I mean? Like, it, for him, it's a weakness. It's not mm. like it, it's a weakness that 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 forces, which is like the conservative mentality. Like it is, but like at the same time, like you think if someone was putting their life's work into being a, a psychologist and who you know was constantly saying, "Oh, well, life is struggle. Life is struggle." Like they'd have a little bit more respect, or at least at least some warm warm feelings, or like understanding or compassion towards uh struggling people that he seems to completely oh, absolutely um and and yeah i mean as you say i mean this is kind of the essence of conservatism which is uh you know uh just just sort of saying that it's your fault uh you know that that, that uh, we shouldn't blame larger structural factors we should just talk about your you know individual character defects which, by the way, not to get off on a whole other thing, is uh, is exactly why it bothers me so much when people who think that they're leftists uh, start sounding like that. You know, when 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 they're like obsessed with you know uh, with with um, they're obsessed with like you know talking about accountability and consequences and you know basically going after people for individually being bad people. It's like guys, this is you're missing the whole point. Uh, but it's um, kind of funny that during that. Um, when we were, I, I messaged you this, but during it, when he says, oh, people shouldn't be allowed to, like Peterson says, people shouldn't be allowed to, you know, extol the virtues of socialism in polite society. That is the right. definition of canceling somebody. You know what right, I mean? Right. Like, you're, like you're, you're taken out of polite society. Like maybe there aren't, you know, economic or, or financial consequences every time, but like, 
you're like the, the things you say in, in this person's opinion are so beyond the pale that you can suddenly not, you know, make those thoughts in, in uh, no, society. No, exactly. <laughs> right. So obviously Peter and like all right wingers is a hilariously hypocritical and shit like this. No surprise there. Um, you know, but look, I don't want to, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not interested in, I mean, obviously we're having a little fun with the stuff that's funny about Peterson, which there's a lot, you know, uh, but, um, but I mean, I'm not interested in criticizing Peterson to like, you know, in order to hate on him as an individual or, uh, or to, um, you know, revel in his misfortunes or anything like that. In fact, I got, I got in trouble a couple of years ago for, uh, uh, for first saying that I, I I felt bad for him, you know, because what he was going through with this his uh, his drug problem. Uh, that's not the point at all. The point is that like you know the ideas that he's spreading are an impediment to uh, creating a better society. Uh, speaking of which, uh, last poor Yorick, thank you so much, brother, for the super chat. Says, uh, <laughs> dear agony Ben, uh, my brother is a, a political philosophy prof. It rolls in. Uh, but refuses to read or engage with Marx. How can we save a soul from capital? Uh, so my so if he's a big fan of John Rawls, uh, my advice would be to get him to read a late, very late book that Rawls wrote called Justice is Fairness or Restatement. Uh, so um, so Rawls's thing, you know, real quick version for people who aren't familiar with this. Uh, Rawls, what Rawls is best known for is this thought experiment called the Veil of Ignorance that says a just society is a society that you design if you simplify a little bit, but you know, if you knew you had to live in it, but you didn't know who you were going to be, you didn't know if you're going to be black or white, male or female, born into a rich family or a poor family. Uh, and a lot of people thought that this was consistent with like, you know, maybe capitalism plus a welfare state, but in this book, justice is fairness restatement. One of his last books, he actually reverses, you know, he actually like explicitly says, no, it can't be uh, in order to realize this vision of justice, you would need uh, some form of uh, democratic socialism, uh, and uh, and so in that book, he seems to have absorbed a lot of his critiques. So you know, read that. Um. So uh. So yeah, I want to. Uh, it is uh, about quarter to uh, to eleven. We've been going for a little over three hours. So uh, I yeah, think you wanted to get out of here at ten. Uh, I, I do want to get out of here at ten, but we we're <laughs> you know, the Peterson discussion was so good. We uh, uh, we went a little over time. Uh, we will we'll strive to be more disciplined about the time in the future. Uh, but uh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Vic. Uh, I believe Griscom is still gone next week. You want to do another one of these next week? Um, Next okay. week? Uh, let, me, let me get back to you tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll get yeah. your schedule figured out. But uh, I, I'm sure we will do another one at some point in the future. For sure. The yeah. So, uh, I really, uh, really appreciate you coming, uh, coming on, uh, doing, uh, doing this segment. Uh, as uh, as far as other stuff uh, that we should plug, it's coming up real quick uh, in the uh, in the future. I should say that uh, on Wednesday, uh, Forrest and I and uh, Ryan Lake uh, and uh, uh, Jacobin Deputy Mike Utrecht uh, and um, and Zero Books editor uh, Doug Lane are uh, going to be streaming at seven o'clock. Eastern uh, for Pacific talk about uh, the movie Scanner Darkly for our uh, for our, our Wednesday uh, Wednesday movie uh, movie segment, uh, which I'm listening uh, to the audio book right now because um, nice. I I like the movie so I was like you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna get yeah, engaged with it. yeah the book's really good uh, and it's 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 like one of the only uh, it's actually the only example I can think of 
of a movie based on a Philip K. Dick uh, novel that actually feels like the novel, like has like the dark humor and, and kind of the rhythms of the original. Yeah. Yeah. The movie, the movie was really good. Richard Linklater is always really good as a director. For, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so on Thursday uh, for uh, the episode drop for patrons is a, a beginner's guide uh, to Kant. Uh, with uh, Matt McManus, uh, Russell Briglia, uh, and Ryan Lake. Uh, mandatory reminder, uh, if you want to, uh, uh, you know, we'll obviously do a public preview, but if you want to uh, watch or listen to uh, that whole episode uh, or uh, any of the other uh, Thursday episodes, uh, then uh, you know, become a, a patron. A mandatory joke for uh, the uh, monthly cost of a of a milkshake at a 50s nostalgia diner in 1994. Uh, you get those uh, those bonus episodes uh, every single Thursday. Uh, you also get access to uh, the uh, the Discord. Uh, you uh, also get uh, regularly scheduled is once a month Discord office hour super chats. And uh, I think we're also going to start doing the uh, Discord movie viewings about once a month. Uh, so the one we did about Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, we well, you know, when we watched Blue to Judas and the Black Messiah patrons, uh, that was uh, was a lot of fun and it was a good discussion after. So I uh, don't know what we'll do next, but uh, we will keep doing those uh, other uh, other good stuff. I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to talk to Jason and see if he wanted to do something um, about uh, Nomadland. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting. He's watching, it with, uh, he's watching it with Leisha, and then they're doing like a, a commentary on it or something. So. I was wondering if I, I don't know. He was he was talking about it last night, so I was like, I like I I really I enjoyed that movie, and I have a lot of thoughts about it. So fair enough. <laughs> uh, so um, then on Friday, the second uh, Philosophy Friday live stream with uh, Jennifer Burgess, going to talk about the trolley problem. Uh, and on uh, Sunday, uh, we do the uh, Sunday night debate breakdowns. We're going to do something a little bit different this time. I am not going to be there, but uh, Ryan Lake and uh, Mark Warren, uh, who are Sunday Debate Breakdown regulars, are going to watch and comment on uh, the debate that I did with uh, with Doug Wilson. So, uh, uh, should uh, should should be fun. Uh, you know, watch them. Uh, you know, uh, you know, roast me a little, maybe as uh, as is merited. Uh, but uh, but in any case. Uh, all good stuff uh, coming, uh, you know, coming up, uh, and then uh, Thaddeus Russell uh, is uh, is going to be on uh, the show on uh, on Monday. So uh, thank you everybody uh, who uh, who watched this long, uh, and um, uh, <laughs> yes, I, I agree. Somebody in the chat says, uh, "If we ever meet Jason's dad, I'll be gravely disappointed." Uh, he's uh, the things that when, when Jason Miles has been on the movie live streams, the things that he said about his dad, like watching movies with his dad, have been hilarious. And, uh, and then his dad called him, and he didn't he didn't answer it live on stream. Yeah, yeah, I really want him to do that next time to you know to 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 answer on speakerphone so we can all talk to him. But uh, uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Vic. Uh, thank you as always, uh, Forrest. Everybody watched. Uh, left his best. <laughs>